Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So the uh, House Select Committee on COVID had their first hearing yesterday and the featured presenter was former CDC director, Dr. Robert Redfield, uh, who was asked about, well, in actually in his opening statement, part of this was uh, actually the thrust of it yesterday's hearing was about the lab leak. And so uh, Redfield addressed that in his opening statement, saying the following. I came to believe, and I still believe today, that it indicates that COVID-19 more likely was the result of an accidental lab leak than a result of a natural spillover event. This conclusion is based primarily on the biology of the virus itself, including the rapid high infectivity for human-to-human transmission, which would then predict rapid evolution of new variants, as well as a number of other important factors, which also include the unusual actions in and around Wuhan in the fall of 2019. All right, so uh, put Redfield squarely in the lab leak camp. I know we're still trying to develop a uh, intelligence community consensus so that there is uh, moral clarity on the issue. But Redfield, who, by the way, his professional training is in the field of virology, like 45 years in that field. No, I'm not saying that Redfield performed admirably during COVID, but um, uh, but he has been fairly consistent in leaning toward the idea that this was a lab leak, which he restated yesterday. Uh, also here a reminder for the COVID amnesty crowd about how people like Dr. Robert Redfield were treated when they suggested during the height of the pandemic that the origins were more likely than not the Wuhan Virology Lab, uh, Jim Jordan recounted some of the characterizations that were leveled against people who subscribe to that theory, and Redfield added his own. Three years ago, if you thought it came from a lab, if you raised that, you were called a nut job, you got censored on Twitter, you were blacklisted on Twitter, you were even called a crackpot by the very scientist who in late January sent emails to Dr. Fauci and said it came from a lab. They called you crackpot. Is that right, Dr. Redfield? I think the most upsetting thing to me was the uh, Baltimore Sun calling me a racist because I said this came from a Wuhan lab. <laughs> it's a racist. <laughs> this is That's the, right. I forgot about that. It, it, Redfield right. was are, racist. It's right. These are the things that we have oh. to be reminded of constantly to remind ourselves who are these people in charge of most of America's leading media outlets in terms of 
you know, audience in terms of size and scope and influence. Uh, the and the quote unquote intelligence community that search that's uh, still searching for a consensus and so forth. The expert class, right? The Remember technocracy. They took Twitter, Facebook. People need to be reminded. Fired from their jobs. Ugh. Now we've spent the last uh, several days talking about the Fauci inspired 180 by other virologists when it came to the origins of the COVID virus. First, they said it had all the markings of something that had been developed in a lab and leaked out of the virology lab. Then they did a 180. Then they got $9 million of grant funding. And this was an important piece because the question, of course, was some of these communiques between Fauci and these two doctors, Gary and Anderson, who authored that letter that was published that Fauci used to tamp down any suggestion that it was a lab leak, protect his Chicom friends, was was Redfield a part of these communications? Did he have requisite knowledge of what was happening, particularly given his disposition on the issue? Uh, Jim Jordan did a nice back and forth here. You ran the CDC and you were on the Coronavirus Task Force, is that right? Correct. That was formed on January 29th. 2020, is that right? Correct. Two days later, Dr. Fauci gets an email from Dr. Anderson, which says what? Virus looks engineered, virus not consistent with evolutionary theory. Is that accurate? That's my understanding. Next day, I know. Did he share that email with you, by the way, Dr. Redfield? No. As a member of the task force, as a head of CDC, did he share that email with you? No. Okay. Next day, February 1st, Dr. Gary sends Dr. Fauci another email. That email says, I don't know how this happens in nature, but it would be easy to do in a lab. Did you share that email with you, Dr. Redfield? No, you didn't no. see either one of those emails, even though you're head of CDC, even though you're on the coronavirus task force that had been formed just two days, three days earlier. No. Three days later, Dr. Anderson and Dr. Gary, who told us it came from a lab and emails to Dr. Fauci that Dr. Fauci wouldn't let Dr. Redfield see, three days later, they changed their position 180 degrees. The question is why? And the answer, uh, although we'll see if they appear before this House Select, Select Committee on COVID to provide uh, their own version of events, I doubt they'll concede this point. But the answer that Jim Jordan gave is the sort of obvious one, what I just mentioned. They had nine million reasons to change their position on the issue at the behest of Tony Fauci. They had the grant funding reason. Three one two six four two five six zero zero is our turnkey debt pro answer line six four six three six. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Um, Also uh, on this score, so, I mean, it's just important to note that Redfield was not privy to the back and forth between Colin, uh, between, well, Fauci and Collins, and then these uh, virologists that they ultimately used in April to say, you know, the virologists, a couple of leading virologists put out this letter that we've heard about, and we'll get you a copy of it, and it says uh, more likely zoonotic, more likely uh, animal to human transform more likely did not happen uh, at the Wuhan Virology Lab. So let's let's just quiet that down. And that was the signal for, to the D.C. press corps and big tech companies. So go out and quiet everybody down, will you? And they did. Um, one other point on this, because uh, the uh, sainted Tony Fauci uh, was on Anderson Cooper the other night. And uh, he was asked whether I mean, of course, Anderson Cooper, I mean, you you should really watch that interview to show you why you shouldn't watch CNN and most of these cable channels and most of the hosts, including Fox News, because 
most of them, there are obvious exceptions, are terrible interviewers. And there's no point. They basically are just there to say, uh, welcome, Tony Fauci. Speak now. Whatever it is you have to say, we're just platforming whatever you have to say tonight. Because none of the questions that you just heard from Jim Jordan, that back and forth with Robert Redfield, about the communications between Fauci and the doctors, about why, for example, Redfield was cut out of it, an expert virologist, CDC director, um, why they had the change of heart, why he uh, abided people being ridiculed and silenced to uh, had reason to believe that the origin origination was the lab, even though Fauci concedes, number one, that it's important to understand the origins of this in terms of future pandemic prevention, which is a position, he, of course, he has to take to seem at all credible. And secondly, that it's certainly possible that it was the virology lab, but we, we know, we don't know, we, know, we may never know, and he still errs on the side, of course, of that it was animal-to-human transfer. Uh, none of no questions from Anderson Cooper about any of this nine million dollars wow. in grant money to the, nothing. It's just basically Tony Fauci. Thank you so much. Please say whatever you've come here to say and then we'll go to a commercial. Um, but he did ask him if we're Republicans, uh, nothing substantive, but just process oriented. If Republicans uh, asked him to testify before this covid select committee, would he do it? And he said, yes, really? So I assume if the ask has not been extended to this point, it soon will be. And that should be a very entertaining exchange when Jim Jordan is able to get his hands on Tony Fauci and at least at least may drill him down on some of the questions that you just heard him go back and forth with uh, with uh, with Dr. Redfield. So, uh, again, uh, does this mean there's going to be accountability? Does this mean Tony Fauci is going to be taken away in cuffs? No, it doesn't mean any of that. Um, but it is important uh, to bring people forward, to continue to remind people, to continue to paper the file with the truth as it seeps out little by little. I mean, that this is important to understand and memorialize what happened who the actual villains were or the incompetence, if they were uh, if they were not malicious. Some, I think, were and some, I think, were not um, that this is an um, this is important, just like getting the origination. Right. Understanding where this came from, uh, which parties were responsible, either through negligence and then maliciousness or through maliciousness from beginning to end. Well, I don't it makes know you which. think. What else are they lying about and what else are they covering up? Well, right. You know, and to, these pick, are... to line their own pockets and to you know promote their agenda. Well, well, that's another angle why this is important, because it speaks to how uh, the this sort of medical public health establishment operates. I mean, uh, Redfield called for a moratorium on gain of function research. Maybe there should be. That's yep. certainly a topic of conversation. Uh, we talked about it earlier this week, the concentration of so many, so much uh, in terms of resources in so few hands like Tony Fauci's. Maybe we should rethink about how we do grant funding to uh, public health professionals and universities and so forth. Uh, where gain of function research is done, if it's going to be done at all, at least when it's done on American taxpayers dime. I mean, these are all good questions. And this is why, you know, I, I get the cynicism about committees 
and I get the frustration with lack of accountability, but this is still important work that the House Select Committee is doing. Frank, Arlington Heights. Hey, good morning. I had to laugh when you were talking about those journalists and the, the lack of questioning. Um, do you remember the game of life, Dan, when we were kids in the oh, 80s? Sure. Did you ever yeah. play that one? Yeah. yeah. I remember how you'd yeah. start off in the beginning of, beginning of the game, and you'd, ha- you'd get to be like a doctor, I think, was the highest paid, then a lawyer. I forget what the middle one was. Then there was journalists, and they were paid like 10000 a year back then. It was low. That's what I think we need to go back to. These uh, figureheads that are on CNN and Fox and all the other ones, they're paid way too much money. They Salary capital. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Salary <laughs> cap. Well, maybe, maybe, have a, maybe have a price ceiling. Yeah, I don't know. But, you know, they are so well paid that they want access to all these people, and they know they're not going to get access if they give them tough questions. So, therefore, everything is a softball. So let's go back to low-paid journalists. Maybe they'll be a little bit hungrier. Yeah, there you go. All right. Thanks for the call, Frank. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 30, or visit them online at signaturebank.bank. That's signaturebank.bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, signaturebank.bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender, Signature Bank. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, how are you enjoying the fallout from the Tucker Carlson tapes, the hue and cry from the Uniparty in D.C.? The Mitch McConnells and the Mitt Romneys, as well, of course, as the Pagliacci's and the whole raft of the new Marxists that dominate the Democrat Socialist Party. Well, Mitch McConnell's in the hospital this morning. He fell last night at a hotel. He's fallen and he couldn't get up. Yeah, this uh, is I hope twice he had the metal or bracelet on. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. The uh, efforts to uh, tamp down, and not just in the Senate, too, by the way, uh, Tucker Carlson addressing the bipartisan criticism he's receiving, including from House members like uh, Dan Crenshaw, who is um, becoming more consistently problematic than uh, many had anticipated. Uh, And not because there's a disagreement about whether people who broke the law should be prosecuted. This is the great lie that goes, the big lie. I guess they they have the big lie. Well, we have the great lie. Um, Their great lie is that, oh, they you want to prosecute uh, looters and rioters on the streets of America's big cities when they protest police brutality, but you don't want to prosecute people who assault police officers at the Capitol. Wrong. That hasn't been true. Uh, it wasn't true on January 6th of 2021, and it isn't true today. 
And by the way, Tucker Carlson has made that point consistently on his show, too. That's a lie. The only uh, people that want to prosecute based on political persuasion rather than behavior or not prosecute are the left who make excuses for stealing and looting um, make uh, describe you know conflagrations as mostly peaceful protests and so forth they're the hypocrites on the issue of the enforcement of the law the rule of law not the rule of men equal justice before the law, regardless of your political persuasion or any other non-behavioral characteristic. That, that's just the foundation for this discussion. It's really tiresome watching them try to misdirect attention away from the substance of the discussion by saying, oh, you know, they're all patriots. That's what they think. They're all patriots uh, uh, and, and, so, and so forth that uh, – uh, uh, Trump supporters and conservatives and Republicans are trying to whitewash January 6th. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Actually, what we've done on this show is apply the same standard when it comes to assessing the evidence that we apply in cases where there have been incidents of alleged police brutality, where there is a belief that the police acted improperly, the same uh, analysis we do when it's uh, looking at the Tyree Nichols case or looking at the QAnon shaman case. That's what's actually happening, despite all of the projection from the new Marxists. Last night, speaking of QAnon shaman, uh, Tucker Carlson had QAnon shaman's lawyer, Albert Watkins, on his program. Simple question. The uh, video, the camera footage, security camera footage that Tucker Carlson aired on his program after obtaining all the footage from Kevin McCarthy and having producers pour through it for weeks. Video showing the QAnon shaman being walking freely and peacefully around the Capitol. And again, I'm not saying that the QAnon shaman did not violate some laws. How did he get into the Capitol building in the first place? Don't know. Uh, do you, you want to have? Do, do you want to uh, try to make out a, a trespassing or even an obstruction of an official proceeding case against him? Go ahead. Uh, we talked about Andy McCarthy's argument in that direction. But let's also acknowledge what is true from the footage that we all see just like we would if it was the Tyree Nichols case and the body cam footage and the the shot cam footage of what happened to Tyree Nichols let's acknowledge what we see with our own eyes how about that as a starting point and what we saw with our own eyes is the QAnon shaman being escorted around uh capital officers in the house chamber while he's at the dais saying a prayer for the officers uh, walking through the hallway amid as many as nine Capitol Police officers congregated. Nothing to see here. And they just saw this saw this guy, this bare-chested guy with a horned helmet on, walk past them. No, okay, no big deal. So any of that footage, did it make it to the defense so that it could have been presented in the, the case or, or or it could have been um, it could have informed the decision that 
that Jacob Chesley made to cut a deal with prosecutors. It could have informed the judge's understanding of what happened that day with respect to this particular defendant, what he did or didn't do. So did you get this in discovery, which the defense is owed? And here's what the QAnon shaman's defense attorney, Albert Watkins, told Tucker. We went through extraordinary efforts on behalf of our client to put him in a position of knowledge. That's my duty as an agent of the court, to make sure that he knew everything that the government had, good and bad, to put him in that position to make a learned, informed, voluntary decision about whether to go to trial or take a plea. And remember, this is a man who had tremendous intelligence, very gentle, very, very articulate, who was diagnosed 15 years earlier by the, by the government with a mental health issue. And the government knew that. The government knew through three hearings when we begged and pleaded to get this man out of solitary confinement, literally falling into an abyss mentally, and through each of those three hearings, that government assistant U.S. attorney knew the most important aspect of that hearing was that Jake was not violent. The government knew. They knew that Jake had walked around with all of these police officers. They had that video footage. I didn't get it. It wasn't disclosed to me. It wasn't provided to me. I requested it. I filed the requisite pleadings for it, and whether I did or not, they had a duty, an absolute duty, with zero discretion, to provide it to me so that I could share it with my client. I never so, got so it. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Um, you know, think about this in a different scenario with respect to discovery as part of uh, due process. If it was a uh, a criminal defendant, uh, a black man in Chicago who was a criminal defendant who was accused of assaulting a police officer, let's say, hypothetical, and uh, there was body cam footage that showed that the police officer had actually initiated the physical encounter with this hypothetical defendant. And once you saw the video coverage, or the, the body cam footage, I should say, uh, you could see that this uh, hypothetical defendant was merely defending himself. And prosecutors didn't turn that over to the defense. What would the response be? Riots in the streets. Uh, th that's not a perfect analog to this situation. But I'm not, the, not the behavior, but the the lack of disclosure in discovery, which uh, Mr. Watkins is absolutely right. He filed. He said he filed the pleadings, the appropriate pleadings, to get any and all information of this sort. Whether he did or not, the prosecution still owes that duty to provide uh, potentially exculpatory uh, evidence to the defense, and they didn't do it. Well, I don't know if he had a bench trial or if there was a jury trial, but that video he did, there was to no be trial. Seen. There's no trial. No, 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 no. He he oh, he, he, pled he out. cut a deal. Yeah, because they kept him, as Julie Kelly said, kept him in solitary confinement for more than 200 days until he came forward and made a plea. 
I mean, what this is like a prisoner of war situation. This is what third world countries do to dissidents. I mean, this is not America that we're living in. I feel really bad for him. And and the th- the distinction that seems to me lost among so many, perhaps purposefully, is you can think the QAnon shaman did something wrong that day. You can conclude that the QAnon shaman broke one or more laws. Well, he shouldn't have been inside the Capitol, yes. And also say that he still owed his due process rights. Yep. That a basic tenets of our adversarial justice system is that the prosecution must, in discovery, present potentially exculpatory evidence to the defense. You can believe those two things. They're not in conflict. But unfortunately, because the understanding among so many is so lacking about due process, about how the justice system is supposed to work, people have become so politicized that they don't believe in the rule of law. They believe in the rule of men and punish my political opponents by whatever means necessary that we're at this place. And it's a bad place to be. As Mr. Watkins went on to say, I mean, what's happened is truly a dagger in the heart of our American justice system. We can't we can't allow it. And but for you disclosing it and whether this isn't about you, this isn't about January 6th. This is about our this is about our justice system being so compromised. The very integrity and core of that which we wore as a badge of honor for, for the entirety of our nation's history has been rendered a vile, disgusting mess by a Department of Justice that was running amok. Hmm. Department of Justice running amok. That seems to be uh, a motif when it comes to discussion of the rule of law in this country. The FBI and the Department of Justice pick an issue, any issue. Tom, Deer Park, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, Dan and Amy, good morning. Um, the last couple of days have just been fascinating for right-wing broadcasting, including here, uh, the false analogies, bad faith arguments, lies by omissions and commissions. Mm-hmm. You know I'm a longtime listener and caller, and I'm just curious, when this dies down, where are you going to, I mean, is it going to be uh, Flat Earth Society, JFK, the moon landing. How are you going to keep us pegged to your show, Dan? Love you. Thanks for the call, Tom. I appreciate that. And I appreciate uh, you providing, uh, as you always do, a wonderful example of the bad example. Thank you for living down to exactly what I was just describing. It's really helpful. It's really helpful. So the substance of the issue of due process uh, and other such related matters as it pertains to the rule of law and what do you get? You get ad hominem and, well, that actually, all, that's all you got from Tom was ad hominem. I mean, you can't address again, the— still talking about it, and now we're labeled as crazies and conspiracy theorists. Right, just like all those flat earthers who said that seems to me that the origination of COVID was the Wuhan Virology Lab. Yeah. Flat earthers silenced them. Uh, JFK conspiracy theorists. Go ahead with your ad hominem. I love it. That, we talk about things like the rule of law and we lay out a case, even starting from the presumption that the QAnon shaman broke the law. And what do you get from the never Trump addled uh, 
self-styled libertarian doofuses like Tom from Deer Park. And yeah, now a little ad hominem back in his direction. Oh, you get name calling. Okay. Well, you, you can't address the substance. You don't want to address the substance. You never address the substance. So right wing this and conspiracy theory uh, theorists that. Fine. Go ahead. Can Please continue. Text message. Read the Sixth Amendment to Tom. Tim in Mount Greenwood. Hey, I got a question. Is How, how come uh, nobody ever files any ethics complaints against the attorneys, the U.S. attorneys that, that are basically committing all these ethic violations like they went after Rudy Giuliani and company? Well, thanks for the call, Tim. Here, um, if Mr. Watkins is, uh, if what Mr. Watkins said is true, he should be seeking sanctions against the U.S. attorneys, the U.S. attorney's office, uh, the D.C. Um, in D.C. that uh, I, I assume the prosecutor in this case, prosecutor of record, he should be seeking sanctions for failure to disclose. And um, he should be seeking. Tucker didn't get this far with him. But that's where I would have gone. Number one, are you going to seek sanctions? Number two, are you going to seek a uh, having the plea bargain that has Kunan Shaman in prison for three and a half years? Are you going to seek to have that set aside based on this new evidence? That's what I would ask. Candace, Mount Pleasant, Wisconsin. Oh, hi. Um, I wanted to make a comment. I remember when Parler was taken down, and that was a big deal, but I don't think a lot of people really understand why. That day... Um, in the Capitol, they had live feed from all different kinds of angles. And I think that's why they, they were taken out, because they had live footage on their own servers that were on Amazon. So mm-hmm. I think that's a really interesting part. And, I mean, we have this law today that nobody can understand, yet our entire system is based on law and, and trust law. And it drives me nuts that no conservative pundits, ever talk about how we used to have common law, which everybody could understand and which was fair. And now we have this British law system that nobody can understand when they want to, they can kangaroo court it like they did with the Whitmer cases and the Whitmer cases. It's the same exact thing as the J six cases. The same exact thing is going on. They're torturing people until they sign a confession. I mean, it's just like I'm reading the white pill by Michael Malice, which is the most fascinating book. Everybody should read it. And this is what happened to the to uh, Russians, you know, from the Bolsheviks. Same thing. That's Thanks all. for the call, Candace. Appreciate it. Well, the, one thing too, you know, the um, the video footage. Oh, it's taken out of context. No, oh, uh, four minutes of video. It's taken out of context. Taken out. Well, what well, did they do to us for months on end with that commission? Well, well, right. They I chose mean, so, their own video that they wanted to put up. So for the Josh Hawley video that shows Josh Hawley. Uh, sauntering down the hallway leaving the capitol and people laughed when they saw that that was that was not taken out of context and then the additional context that's provided that was provided by tucker carlson on his program that shows the police moving all sorts of people out and josh howley actually sauntering down the hallway to catch up with the other people that are being escorted out of the building by capitol police does that additional context change your understanding of that moment so right did, uh, i'm sorry was there somewhere during the, the J6 hearings that I missed when all 41,000, 44,000 hours of surveillance footage was played? Yeah, I didn't think so. Selective editing. Right. Roger, Southside. 
Yeah, well, it, 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 it's a shame. The one thing I'll point out is that all these January 6th uh, people that they're went after or prosecuted or sentenced, those are all being done out of a, out of a Washington, D.C. federal courthouse. And most of these lawmakers to the left in their own states, including Illinois, have either made attempts or have been successful in reducing, you know, putting in more, uh, like we have here in Illinois, the crime act. Yet all the people, if you're from Wyoming and you got charged in J6, okay, you're being charged, your court, your case is in a uh, Washington, D.C. federal yeah. courthouse. Well, it's very, it's, yeah, but I mean, it, thanks for the, they've kept. well, thanks for the clarification. Right. I mean, they're being tried. The, the, they're being tried where the alleged crimes were committed, which makes sense. However, there is an argument to be there is an argument to be made for change of venue. In fact, Julie Kelly made it yesterday on this program because of, well, institutional bias. Essentially, uh, can you get a fair trial inside the Beltway if you were if you're being charged with anything related to January sixth? Um, that seems to be an open question. And by the way, the QAnon shaman case with this disclosure by his attorney that uh, discovery rules were allegedly violated certainly doesn't inspire more confidence that people can get a fair trial inside the Beltway, does it? It's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. NBC5 hosted the first uh, mayoral debate last evening. Marion Ahern moderating, uh, Paul Ballas and Brandon Johnson participating. What did you learn from the first debate between the two mayoral finalists? 312-642-5600, turnkey dot pro answer line. 64636DA, turnkey dot pro text line. Well, I mean, who won? Who won the debate? Because, of course, Brandon Johnson was quick to jump on Paul Ballas. He's a Republican. He much he said that I counted six times. He reminded people that oh, when Barack Obama was president, Paul Vallis was a Republican, and he's the evil person. Um, my scoring had uh, Marion Ahern as the clear winner in the uh, contest. Oh, she was amazing. She, she well, she's the only one who knows how to throw a political punch. Um, it may be time at some point for the gentleman 
to take off their cardigan sweaters and at least give the electorate some good entertainment since good government is not on the table. Uh, Marianne Ahern, uh, with her leading questions, at least presenting the pushback that the other that the two candidates were not very effective in presenting. So first, Paul Vallis on his dalliances with Republicans. Last year, you did participate in an event held by Awake Illinois. It is a far right group and it uses rhetoric that you later admitted was hateful. Also in 2009, you said in an interview, you thought of yourself as more of a Republican. In fact, let's listen. So someday you were thinking of running for Cook County right. Board President right. in the Republican side. On the Republican side. So are you now officially a Republican? Well, I'll probably um, register as a Republican. But you don't in, register now in the next right? primary. You don't register. Well, you, you, you have to enter you have the to primary. Take a, you have to take a primary ballot. Right, you have to take You're a saying you would ballot. You're saying you would take a Republican I would take ballot. a Republican primary You think ballot. of yourself as a Republican. I'm more of a Republican than Democrat now. Oh. That was in 2009. What do you say to Chicago for voters who question your party affiliation? Yeah, well, let me point out that I, I'm a lifelong Democrat. I worked for Don Clark Netsch and Phil Rock in the Senate. I actually ran for office. Uh, as a Democrat in the Democratic primary against Rob Blagojevich and, and, of course, Pat Quinn's running mate in 2014, which was five years after that interview. Uh, and, and, of course, when I ran for mayor, I, I've always declared and I've always registered in the Democratic primary. So my history has always been that of a Democrat. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, she did the same thing to Brandon then. She know, did. She about did you, This is you defunding police. Right. She did. Mr. Johnson, you attended an event in 2020. It was called We Don't Call Police. And that same year, you said it was a political goal to defund the police. Here is what you said. The president of the United States, the former president of the United States, I'm sorry, President Barack Obama, uh, took it one step further as well and and basically said that the, the, the effort of the defund police movement lost an audience because of of that um, that slogan, I guess is what what he's calling it, which which I don't look at it as a slogan. It's, it's actually it's an actual real political goal. So, Mr. Johnson, what do you say to Chicagoans who do want more officers in their neighborhoods? Well, my public safety plan does just that. It's why in my public safety plan we're going to promote train and hire 200 more detectives so that we can actually solve crime in the city of Chicago. You know, it's going to cost me roughly $50 million to make sure that we are actually administering the consent decree. You know, right now, we're not administering the consent decree and we're not solving violence in the city of Chicago. By promoting and hiring 200 more detectives, we actually can solve crime. Because What happens to those officers who are promoted? What happens to refilling those? Well, look, the way you recruit officers, you got to make sure when people are working on the front line, you can't ask police officers to do their job in someone else's. The fact of the matter is, almost 40% of the 911 calls that are coming through are mental health crises. I know what it's like to wake up and serve the front line, right, as a public school teacher. Oh, and you, you don't ask people to do their job in someone else's. We have to make sure that we're providing the support on the front line so that we can alleviate the pressure from police officers so that they, they can deal with the more violent, serious crime. So who got the worst of their exchanges with Marion Ahern, Vallis or Johnson? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Well, no one answered the question. Vallis didn't and Johnson didn't. 
You know, I didn't hear his, you know, why are you now back to being a Democrat? Yeah, you get, well, you got I mean, to spin he, out of it. It means right. that what, what Paul Vallis has been doing for the last uh, two months, That's well, funny. more than that, actually, Air Marion Ahern mentioned uh, Awake Illinois, which goes back several months. And, of course, nobody challenges the premises uh, that Awake Illinois, far-right group and hateful rhetoric. But regardless, so that's fine. That's what it is. That's what people are fine with, I guess, the Vallis voters. Um, so, um, so, yeah, you just this is just credentializing for Vallis, and it's uh, Brandon Johnson trying to soft-pedal his defund the police agenda. That's all. Sure, of course. What do you expect? Three one two six four two five six zero zero. I like this exchange. I thought you're right, though. The big winner of last night was definitely Marianne Ahern. Look, I've been managing multi-billion-dollar budget. budgets all my life, and at the end of the day, the mayor actually controls twenty-eight billion dollars in spending, not to mention over a billion dollars in tip revenue. But he not only wants to increase the head tax, he wants to tax the hotel motel industry uh, with a sixty-six percent increase in their tax, which is the highest tax industry already. Any any response? Of course. The mayor of Philadelphia, this is what he said, and I quote. He said... That, uh, response that. Yeah, what Respond. I'm, I'm, I'm responding to it. No, is that not. Paul Vallis is the only person that he has ever met that is willing to spend one dollar three times. All right, that is not the, a response, the, though, well, to your... well, it is, because the structural <laughs> deficit that we are experiencing now is because Paul Vallis worked repu- with Republicans to get rid of people's retirement. All right, we agree to <laughs> disagree on that one. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be... Yeah, it wasn't that great. But I mean, it's just there's nothing you can do because these two candidates are so vanilla. And um, and as I said, they've, you know, got their big pillowy gloves on. So, yeah, you get the right wing extremists consorting with right wing extremists from from uh, Brandon Johnson. And you get Vallis, who you know, barely even engages uh, except in the postgame press conference. Uh, he apparently thinks that, uh, as he did in the primary, that the Rose Garden strategy, I shall not uh, cross swords with my opponents other than to, you know, quote unquote, correct the record, correct his record when his record is under assault. Then that's the play. I don't think he's right, but uh, that's the approach he's taken. So that's what we're going to get. Brandon Johnson said a better, stronger, safer Chicago more than 15 times. That was his standard line. Well, that's a slogan. That's a slogan. A better, stronger, safer Chicago. That's what it's going to be because I said it. And he well, was delusional about the Bears. I mean, this this exchange is really cute. This proves how young he is. Mr. Vallis. Uh, I don't support um, billion-dollar subsidies for sports old. teams, and I certainly don't support putting billions of dollars into Soldier Field. Mr. Johnson. Of course I want the Bears to stay in the city of Chicago. They're not. You know, I grew up Over. with the Super Bowl shuffle. We need oh another one in Chicago. Um, and so I'm prepared and willing to sit down and, and work with uh, the ownership. <laughs> and let's see what we can figure out. I'm asking the ownership of the Chicago Bears just to hold tight, a better, stronger, safer <laughs> Chicago as possible, and give the new administration that I'm going to bring an opportunity to make the case. But, of course, uh, not subsidizing, but finding creative ways in which we can make sure that the Super Bowl shuffle lives on and my son gets to see a Super Bowl in Chicago. Really? You thought uh, Vallis's answer was the better one on that on that question? Well, it was an answer. I mean, it's over. It, he's Brandon Johnson's delusional. They they bought the property. It's they're not coming back to Chicago. I don't care oh. how how much money you spend, you know, enhancing Soldier Field. They're not coming back. Uh, I yeah, I agree with you. That's not speaking of not answering the question. Um, do you think that Vallis gave the better answer to the question? This is a political campaign. I'll remind you. Yeah. Well, who gave the better answer there? 
I think Paul Vallis did. Why? Because he stated why he doesn't want to invest money in Soldier Field to re, to refurbish it. Mm-hmm. And that was his answer. And you think that is uh, where the city is? They don't mind seeing the Bears go to Arlington Heights, where city voters are? I don't think people mind that the Bears are going to Arlington Heights. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't. I, I don't. I mean, <laughs> I the, the, like it's a miserable experience at Soldier Field. It's miserable to get there, and right. Know, that's and that's I'm wh- biased. I'm from that area. I love that the Bears are moving to Arlington yeah. Heights. It's uh, miserable to get there. That's why it, every game is a sellout and has been since uh, the city was incorporated, or at least the Decatur hmm. Staley's were. And um, and they'll sell out in Arlington Heights too. And they've got what a thirty year waiting list for their. Uh, season ticket holders. That's not the point of the sellout in Arlington Heights. The point, the, the, I mean, and, and I'm, I'm not going to like die on the hill of the Bears here, but it's so funny. The the Paul Vallis when he prevaricates, it's okay, and when he's politically tone deaf, it's okay. It's always okay. I get it. You're just a homer. You're just going to wave the flag no matter what he says or does. But that's not a good answer. The answer is, I, look, as a matter of principle, we have more prior, we have other priorities for limited tax dollars to improve people's quality of life. So I certainly wouldn't uh, put together some uh, major subsidy package to keep the bears there when we're still paying off the last one uh, for the when we drop the spaceship in Soldier Field. But but I certainly want the bears to stay in Chicago because the bears are iconic and Chicago's iconic and they belong in Chicago, even if that's not feasible, probably more likely than not. The position of the mayor, I thought this was uh, about providing hope and saving Chicago. You want another iconic business to leave Chicago, Citadel and Caterpillar and Boeing and Tyson, not enough. I mean, I, I don't think you want to be in the position of promoting the idea or being indifferent to the idea of the Bears leaving the city. That's not a happy day okay. when the Bears leave the city. But but OK, I've already well, I grieved mean, them. I'm over them. Well, over. F- well, fine. But I mean, it's just the, the, like Vallis is so unskilled politically and as a rhetorician, despite all of his, you know, throwing out little idiosyncratic statistics there's just like no sort of vision there. There's no sort of emotional quotient there. Uh, and, you know, Brandon Johnson is just likable enough to, uh, to to downplay his radical political ideology and get this thing done. One other thing about the Vallis voter, since I'm you know taking so much heat for it, I might as well take more. The Vallis voter with this whole like what you know, what should we do? Should we decide to save Chicago or should we decide to, you know, throw in and and Brandon Johnson and let it get worse before uh, so that you can generate a real reform movement and maybe it'll get better someday somehow. Um, It it gives the impression that the Vallis voter is actually in charge of this election, that you're going to be determinative in this election. You're, You're not. You're not going to determine this election. What I do is going to determine this election. No, it's not. The base Vallis voter, you are a minority, distinct minority. You, your decision, the center-right Vallis voter, your decision will not determine the outcome of this race. You know what will determine the outcome of the race? Turnout in minority wards. Any more than the decision of the 
the Maggie Cullertons, the uh, awfuls on the lakefront, the angry white female leftists will determine the outcome. That's already baked in. Uh, you got uh, 60% turnout in the 19th Ward. What are you going to get, 90 on April 4th? All the upside is in the minority wards. And I'm not saying that it's going to be realized because I don't see any real revolution uh, coming in either direction based on, well, number one, turnout in the primary. But 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 understand, uh, again, in 2019, the majority of the ballots cast were by black residents of Chicago. And so when you layer in Latino residents and white leftists, that's a super majority. Right. Now, Paul, Paul Vallis is going to pull some Latino voters. He's going to pull some black voters, which is why I think the race will be close. But but I mean, the idea that the Republican who's biting his tongue to vote for Paul Vallis, what I do is going to make or break. Uh, I'm sorry, it's not. You're already baked in. Greg in Schomburg, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning, guys. When the poll comes out next, it will be tied. Uh, Johnson picked up a lot because of what Dan is talking about, the the rhetoric and his style and the audience to which he is trying to appeal. Um, There is a positive to all of this, however, though, that if Amy is going to leave the city and move back to Mount Prospect, she's closer to work. (laughs) Yeah, right. And the Bears. Yes, there you go. Yeah, thanks for the call, Greg. Uh, George in Naperville. I say let's go Brandon because he brought back our dormant collected memories of the Bears. <laughs> exactly. Well, they don't get enough recognition. The 85 Bears they especially. They don't. Yeah. But you know what? One thing why we cannot have Brandon Johnson on the fifth floor uh-huh. is because the CTU will be running that show. And don't forget what he did to all of your children. 15 months. That was him. He was part of that plan to keep teachers out of schools. Brandon was res- was in part responsible for the shutting down of one of the poorest school systems in the country with devastating consequences for 15 consecutive yep. months and, and, and three times threatening to strike to force the mayor to keep schools closed. And if you look at the crime statistics and you look at the right. violence and you look at the dislocation and decline in test scores, you can see the results. Now listen to his response. response. During COVID, he's talking about. A 100-year pandemic was responsible no, Brandon. for everything Wake being up. shut down. But when you're supported by someone like Ken Griffin, who loves DeSantis, uh, right-wing extremists, who go. deny the fact that we actually had a pandemic. <laughs> that's the so problem nice. that we have when you are part of the Republican Party. And that's why the city of Chicago cannot afford Republicans like Paul Vallis. I know, Dan, did DeSantis deny that COVID was here or was real? No. Yeah, well, the problem is, um, what's Paul Vallis going to do in response to that jujitsu? Agree? I mean, DeSantis, Ken Griffin, these are bad people, according to Paul Vallis. Not just according to Brandon Johnson, also according to Paul Vallis. I I mean, look, I I thought Paul bringing up the school shutdowns and the impact on kids was right to do. And uh, I think he could have been stronger on it, but at least it was it was a good moment for him. But that piece of jujitsu, even though I find Brandon Johnson detestable in terms of his belief system and his. Uh, propaganda, and that's what that is, what you just heard. Of course, I mean, how, how much have we right. talked about these issues? Um, even though I find it detestable, it's effective. I mean, again, remember your audience. 
uh, who's what what is the disposition of Chicago? Paul Vallis says it was a decision. It was the reaction to COVID to shut down the schools that devastated kids with respect to their mental health and their intellectual development and so forth. And Brandon Johnson said, no, it was a pandemic that shut down the, the, yeah. uh, the system and shut down the schools and everything else. So where is the majority of Chicago on that issue, do you think? The pandemic caused it or it was the politician's response to the pandemic? Well, any right minded person it's, you know, the politician's response to the pandemic. And how many right-minded people do you think are in Chicago? A majority? Not many, no. Yeah. That's the problem. That's This is why I keep saying this is the fundamental problem. This is why I said from the beginning, no matter who wins, even Lightfoot, Paul Vallis was going to be an underdog. People are not, people that are center-right are not fully appreciating the landscape on which Paul Vallis is operating. And... Uh, how he is playing into Brandon Johnson's hands with his uh, pandering on these matters. Well, not specifically the school shutdowns, but on other matters well, to what, try to credentialize himself. Yeah, it's should, the wrong play. What What should Vallis have done? Because he brought up Ken Griffin and Ron DeSantis a bunch of times. Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis just ignored it. Do you think that was the right play? No, I think Paul Vallis has to have... Um, it has to be able to jujitsu those issues the way Brandon Johnson just jujitsued him on the school shutdowns. It wasn't the school shutdowns; it was the pandemic that shut it down. And and Paul Vallis is you know right there being a a COVID denier with Ken Griffin and Ron DeSantis, the boogeyman. And you know Paul Vallis has to stop and say. Let, let, and by the way, just as a quick aside, yes, bells with debates. What what is this Pavlovian? Get rid of the bells, NBC5. That's so juvenile. Um, I hate that. But um, Paul Vallis needs to be able to reset and deliver on the point. This is and, – and expose Brandon Johnson for what he's doing. This is a guy who's trying to misdirect away from terrible policy decisions that hurt our children. Look, here's me. I'm the fix-it guy. Um, I'm – I'm postpartisan. I'm postracial. None of that stuff matters. Your quality of life matters to me. And what I do and what I've always done is improve people's quality of life through sensible public policy. I did it in the education space. I did it when I was a green eye shades guy in the back office at City Hall because, you know, as everybody understands, budgets are moral documents and it's immoral to spend beyond your means. We shouldn't be spending beyond our means because that hurts people. And so we didn't. I mean, I'm not saying that that's exactly accurate, but it, he, this is a pitch he could make. And also, instead of your egghead in commercials spouting conventional lines, find somebody. Where are the people that he helped? Where are the people in commercials? Not people with titles. Um uh, a, a family in Austin said Paul Vallis is the reason that my kid got an education and went on to be an engineer. Somebody in New Orleans, when our schools were devastated by Katrina, it was Paul Vallis who's part of the turnaround team that helped us put our lives back together. And Phil, you know, a record that says this is a guy who gets things done, improves the quality of life for people because he makes good choices for our benefit. He is other regarding. He is a servant leader. Instead, he's playing into identitarian politics, which is a game he cannot win. Mike in the loop.
The um, missing piece of this puzzle, too, is as much as I detest her, is totally prickwiggle. And what she can do behind the scenes with these unions and get people out to vote in the pastures and everything else, I don't think should be discounted at all. I mean, I can't stand the woman, but you never know what she's going to do um, at the last minute or throughout the process, I think. Thanks for the call, Mike. Well, again, there's right. There's This is the point. There's a lot of identitarian-oriented infrastructure that's replaced imperfectly uh, to much diminished capacity the machine infrastructure that will drive vote in the wards where they're dominant and where, you know, and their base camps, Preckwinkle and others. So I, I you and know, SEIU came out, supported Brandon yesterday, which obviously we knew that was going to happen. Yeah, but they had a course. big rally for him. A lot of people were there. Right. And there's and they have a, and CTU and SEIU have a lot of foot uh, soldiers in yep. addition to cash. And they vote. So I just, you know. You can, you can just put your blinders on and just say right or wrong and this is going well and this is the right thing. Okay, well, we'll see. Maybe maybe you're right. Maybe Paul Vallis and Joe Trippi have it sussed out perfectly. We'll see. Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. America First with Sebastian Gorka, today at 3, right before Sean Thompson at 4 on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, Mr. 10%, the big guy, President Biden, will present his budget today, which will be DOA in the House. It's just a political document that's intended to offer the big guy the platform to say, there's my plan, where's your plan? You don't have a plan. Where's your plan? And uh, we need a clean debt ceiling bill, too, to to prevent uh, America defaulting on its obligations and uh, cats and dogs living together and all the tragedies that will occur subsequently. What should Republicans be doing in response on debt ceiling on the where's your plan question that's forthcoming? Well, that's been presented and forthcoming. And then when they mill about. Biden just says, well, their plan obviously must be to cut Medicare and Social Security. Oh, no, no, how dare he? Um, That's been going on for about uh, 40 years to Republicans' detriment generally. For more on this, pleased to be joined by Phil Kirpin, president of the American Commitment and chairman of the Internet Freedom Coalition. Phil, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. One thing before we get uh, to the budget stuff, I just want to thank the voters of Chicago for dispatching uh, with your horrendous mayor, because as far as I can tell, that's the only thing that changed between when Biden was against the D.C. crime bill and when he flipped and was for it. So I want to thank them. Uh, thanks to them. We're not going to get lighter sentences for carjacking here in D.C. So that was good. OK. All right. Um, we, you we'll may, help out any way we can. <laughs> you may want to hold your applause until the outcome in April 4th in the runoff. But um, right. Dispatch. No, it, already helped foot us was positive. it already helped us out uh, no matter true. what happens, because it got 81 votes in the Senate yesterday. So uh, the true. Democrats, for whatever reason, decided they have to uh, look like they care about crime in the nation's capital all of a sudden. Well, if we can help Democrats look the part, then it's, you know, (laughs) work well done by us. Uh, All right, Phil. So uh, you've written about uh, the debt ceiling issue, but sort of the larger backdrop today with uh, the presentation of of Biden's budget. The president's 
the president's plan is to raise taxes on everything, essentially $2 trillion of tax hikes, a brand new wealth tax, a doubling of the capital gains tax, higher income taxes, higher corporate taxes, a quadrupling of the brand new stock buyback tax that he just enacted last year. And he says that this will solve the deficit, solve the debt. Um, we're just going to squeeze, uh, you know, trillions more in taxes um, by dialing up all the levers of higher taxes. Of course, you know, the problem with that is um, if you jack up taxes on all those things, especially investment on investment, on, corp on uh, corporations, on businesses, all that, you're going to have a major negative effect on economic activity. And, you know, you can't make any of the budget math work if you don't have a robustly growing economy. And so I think his plan will actually make deficits much worse. It's worth noting that last year, with the Trump tax cuts in place, we had the second highest revenue ever in history as a percent of GDP. We basically had 20% of GDP in revenue. Um, so this idea that we're going to solve our budget problems by, by jacking up taxes on businesses in particular and on investment is really insane. Uh, every time those taxes go up, revenues go down. Every time those taxes go down, revenues go up. We've got decades and decades of experience on this. And so Biden's plan uh, would not address the deficit in any way. And in fact, because he wants to keep increasing spending on everything, uh, it actually will make deficits worse. And Biden likes to play games with this stuff, right? Because he says, oh, I cut the deficit a trillion dollars. Well, you know, he's comparing it to the peak COVID years when they were shoveling as much money out the door as they possibly could, you know, as fast as they possibly could. If you look at it on a projection to projection basis, which is to say, if you look at what the CBO said the deficits were going to be for 10 years when he came into office, which is versus what they say they're going to be for 10 years now, he's actually increased deficits by $6 trillion in just two years. And so uh, the rhetoric from Democrats and from the president in particular is the exact opposite of reality. And I think that what Republicans need to do is basically lay out the facts before the American people. Uh, we have a, a spending problem. Uh, revenues were not just normal but high. Uh, the Trump tax cuts should be made permanent. They've been successful, not just economically but fiscally. Uh, but we need to cut spending and we need to grow the economy, most importantly. If the economy is not growing, if you have weak economic growth, then you can't manage any of the federal obligations in the entitlement programs or in the regular budget. And so I think they need to talk about uh, cutting regulation, keeping taxes low, uh, creating an environment that's conducive to growth, limiting the federal bureaucracy, expanding American energy, getting rid of all the crazy restrictions that Biden's put in on that. Uh, but they do at some point, uh, you know, they, they do at some point have to show what their plan is to cut spending. And of course, you know, the the conservatives demanded that McCarthy commit to that as a condition of becoming speaker. Uh, this so-called clean debt ceiling is the dirtiest idea in the world. This idea that you should just keep borrowing more and more and more money and not do anything to change the path that you're on uh, when you're on a path to fiscal ruin. Uh, I don't see anything clean about that, but the media and the Democrats love to use the word clean for that. And uh, look, Republicans so far have proposed pretty modest spending uh, reductions. I think the list that they put out was don't spend the unobligated COVID fund. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. It's like that. Uh, they want to do uh, work requirements for food stamps. That's good uh, for that. And they want to block the student loan bailouts. Okay. All of that is great. They should definitely do those things. 
But that adds up to something like $700 billion over 10 years. Uh, we need cuts well into the trillions. And so it's a good start, um, but I think they're going to need to lay out a lot more than that. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people point to the model budget that Russ Vogt, the former Trump budget director, put out. I think he's got like $11 trillion in spending cuts over 10 years, and uh, it's pretty aggressive, in particular in the parts of government that have been, uh, you know, destructive of the economy and of waging the culture war against conservatives. And, uh, and I think that, you know, Republicans have been wary to put out big cuts and defend them because they know they're going to get attacked uh, by the media and by Democrats and get demagogued. And if they can't actually get any of this stuff enacted at the end of the day, then they don't want to put their fingerprints on it. But, you know, if you want to be taken seriously and say you're actually going to balance the budget and you're actually going to cut spending at some point, you know, you do have to put your cards on the table because otherwise, you know, I don't know how much headway you can make in those private negotiations where Democrats just will say, you know, we're not going to do it, period. And if you don't take your case to the American people, uh, I don't see how you can win this. And by the way, the American people are with Republicans on this. Every single poll I've ever seen. Do you think we should cut spending if we have to increase the national debt? It's off the charts yet. People are not stupid. You know, if you were running a business the way they run the federal government and you were racking up massive operating losses and you had maxed out all your sources of capital and you went to the bank and said, I need another operating loan, give me, you know, five more million dollars. And they said, well, maybe, but what's your plan to fix the situation that you're in? You know, that what the Democrats are saying on the national debt is basically like telling the bank, I have no plan at all. I'm not going to change anything. We're going to keep running huge losses every day. Give me the money. Well, right. And, 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 and the, but the problem, of course, is you just pointed to it, is that there are too many Republicans, including in leadership, particularly in the Senate, who are afraid of the implications of their stated policy views. And so they won't make the arguments. They're afraid of the implications of the arguments. They're afraid to make a case on this or much of anything else, it would seem. I mean, a good example of this is one of the items in the laundry list that you were running through, capping Obamacare subsidies at 400 percent of the poverty level. Uh, boy, I, I, I'm old enough to remember when the Republican Party said we needed to repeal Obamacare. Now the position yeah, is we well, need right, to cap right. subsidies yeah, at 400 percent of poverty. Which, by the way, was the original Obamacare limit before they got, got rid of the limit during COVID. I mean, so their, their proposal is go back to the original Obamacare. It's yeah. basically what the Republicans are now saying. That, we're supposed to, that we were supposed to repeal. Right. right. The, the, well, you can I see mean, why it doesn't inspire a lot like of confidence. In a row? Yeah. yeah, right. It's not, it's not right. great. I mean, look. Uh, Obamacare has been a total failure. I mean, it has not accomplished anything they told us it was going to accomplish, and it's, it's driven up premiums dramatically. You know, if you don't qualify for the subsidies, it's insane what it costs. And so, you know, of course, the Democrat solution is throw more subsidies at it. But, you know, that just makes it more expensive and transfers the cost to taxpayers. I mean, that's, that's not a solution. And so uh, I do think that, uh, by the way, I think there's an appetite to be much bolder on health care in general than any politicians uh, appreciate at this point. Everyone hates the big hospital systems. Everybody hates the big insurance companies. Everyone hates big pharma. Everyone hates uh, the, the massive health bureaucracy that did every single thing wrong for the last couple of years. I mean, if there's ever been a time where you could, like, blow up all of the rules and regulations and bureaucracies and bring back, you know, independent physicians groups and let people have control of their own health care dollars and get something resembling a functioning market with price transparency, like, this should be the time to do it. Because everyone's unhappy with every aspect of healthcare, so I don't know why they're not much bolder on that. Because if you could fix healthcare, uh, you you fix the federal budget problem. Well, again, um, you know, 
uh, the the dynamic of being afraid of their own shadows. They they seem to be a, some some. And I will say this for Republicans in the Senate: they have you know they it, it's totally gutless, but it is actually a bit helpful that Mitch McConnell said, you know, the Speaker and the President should work out a deal, and then you know we'll take up whatever they come up with. I mean that's fine. If yeah, at least it's deferring to the House. Come up with something worthwhile. Yeah. Hey, Phil, right. before we let you go, I wanted to ask you, because I know a lot of us started following you on Twitter during the COVID years. And what was your, your reaction when the Department of Energy finally admitted that COVID came out of the Wuhan lab, that it was a lab leak? Well, it's interesting because I think that the the sort of the, the establishment has always known that it probably came from the lab. They went to pretty extraordinary lengths uh, to avoid ever admitting it or saying so. And then it seemed like a, a switch flipped because you had the energy thing, you had the FBI director going on TV saying it. You've, now you've got the former CDC director. I don't know if you saw his testimony yesterday. Oh, it was yeah. pretty incredible. Not only did he run through a whole list of reasons he thought it came from the lab, but he said that it was the result of U.S.-funded research yeah. at the lab in Wuhan. So, you know, Fauci and the other conspiracists, according to him, I don't know if he's right or not, but according to him, we, we paid for it to be created in a lab and then we covered the whole thing up. Uh, you know, I think it's just part and parcel of everything that went on during COVID, where they lied about every single thing. They expressed uh, no, uh, you know, they expressed 100% total confidence in their lies, and they allowed no dissent. They called anyone who disagreed with their lies a misinformer, and they tried to shut up people who had any alternative views. And I, I don't, I, 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 I don't know. What can you say at this point? We're not. Are we surprised? I mean, I don't think we're surprised, but I will say. You know, to me, it smells a little bit like geopolitics, like suddenly the establishment, you know, wants to go after China. So now it's OK to say what was always obvious. He is Phil Kirpin. He is the president of American Commitment, chairman of the Internet Freedom Coalition as well. Phil, thanks as always. Appreciate it. All right. Have a good one. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. You've made the switch and it feels so good. You switched to Chicago's morning answer on AM 560. The answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. One of the uh, individuals who provided testimony before the uh, House Select Committee on COVID is a Democrat named Jamie Metzl senior fellow at the Atlantic Council who once worked for the Clinton administration's National Security Council and for Joe Biden's Senate office. But he took it upon himself to investigate the origins of the COVID-19 outbreak. He told uh, members of that select committee, China must be the primary focus, calling himself a lifelong Democrat and a progressive person. I kept digging. I couldn't find the justification for these strong arguments calling people like me looking into the pandemic origins in good faith conspiracy theorists. A lot of Americans had this vision of Wuhan as some little market town where a bunch of yokels are eating bats for dinner every night. But Wuhan is China's Chicago. It's an incredibly sophisticated, highly educated, wealthy city. Oh, my God, things are worse in Wuhan than we thought. Uh tweet uh, this morning from uh, one Kevin Rooney on last night's debate between Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson. The Merrill debate had me in a good mood this morning. I'm just so happy I don't live in or own property in Chicago anymore. 
That was his takeaway from the debate. Uh, <laughs> oh not God, dissimilar to mine. So rude. Three one two six four two fifty six hundred turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six D A turnkey dot pro text line. And we did get an email. How come no one's talking about the high property taxes? Is Brandon Johnson a commissioner on the Cook County Board for property taxes? And we'll get you no. that answer. No, he's not. He's a member of the Cook County Board. He's not Board of Tax Appeals. Remember the Cook County Board writ large. Not right, the... but if, when, if and when he becomes mayor, is he going to raise our property taxes? Yes, like every mayor has oh. and will. No, not, not according to him. <laughs> Nobody's talking. To bring Chicago home, yeah, to raise revenue, to focus on housing, but I'm also committed to not raising property taxes oh. because that's what was done. $2.5 billion of property tax increase, again, because of the budgetary schemes of Paul Vallis. That's why we are in this structural deficit right now. We're going to eliminate that structural deficit, make critical investments up to $1 billion over four years, and we're going to do it without raising property taxes. Paul Vallis is going to raise property taxes. He promised to do that five years ago, $250 million, decided to not publish that because he knows it's not going to work. Dinner's ready. Yeah, I had the bell, really. (laughs) Um, But that's Brandon Johnson sounding reasonable and and being on offense. Uh, The latter... Paul Vallis should try uh, once in a while. But, uh, you know, if anybody who believes any Chicago politician saying I'm not going to raise property taxes or taxes generally, I mean, really, you get what you deserve. Oh, nobody's talking about property taxes. We've spent um, as long as I've been on the air, we've talked about property taxes in Chicago and Illinois at a granular level with myriad concrete examples with detailed explanations of the property tax classification system in Cook County as compared to the other 101 counties in Illinois, with experts on. Uh, I made it central to a, a legislative campaign that I, a marketing campaign that I did for state legislative candidates a couple of cycles ago. And the response is that eh, the majority. Uh, the majority the majority, not all, the majority, they don't care about their property values. They don't care about their kids' education. They don't care about public safety. I don't know what they care about. They Mainly, it seems to me, they care about identitarian politics. They care about their ident- non-behavioral identity characteristics, and they care about hating Republicans. Uh, beyond that, I don't know what the majority of Chicagoans care about. I really don't. I hear the words they mouth, what they allegedly care about, but then I see what they do, and there's a massive disconnect between the two, isn't there? So you'll excuse my cynicism if I don't, uh, if I'm not wowed by the rhetorical flourishes of a Brandon Johnson or a Paul Vallis on these matters about how they're going to snap Chicago back into the city it was in the 90s. That's not happening. That is not on the table. I hate to throw a wet blanket on your boundless hopes and dreams, but they're largely fact-free. Well, it was really, you know, one of the last questions Marion Ahern from NBC5 asked, and by the way, she did an amazing job, I think, uh, was what are you going to do on okay. day one? What are you going to do day one? And Paul Vallis said bring police officers back to their districts, 53% or in other districts. Yeah, yeah. Brandon Johnson, guess what he said? I'm going to hire young people. For what he never expounded, like what, you're going to hire young people. He goes, yeah, I'm going to keep the summer jobs <clears throat> program <clears throat> going all year, and that's the first thing I'm going to do is hire young people to, to come into city hall. Yeah, right. Summer jobs program, uh, hire 200 detectives, uh, 
social workers to respond to what he would term non-emergency calls and so on and so forth. I, I know the rap. We all know the rap. And so? That's his number one priority. Here's the two of these uh, candidates addressing the issue of the, I mean, this is important against the backdrop of the funeral of uh, Officer Lasso today, the relationship between police and the fifth floor, the relationship between police and the mayor's office. Uh, how is that going to be improved if you were mayor? So I'm, I'm deeply um, sorry and saddened, and I offer my condolences to the family. Um, you know, look, the police department has to, to trust its leadership. And as I said, we're putting police officers and the community in an awful situation. In order to repair trust within our communities, we have to concentrate on making sure that mental health support services are available for the residents of the city of Chicago and mental health support is available for officers who are serving on the front line. It's a very traumatized moment right now that we're all experiencing. But you also have to make sure that you're listening to the people on the front line. I know what that's like. I got up every single day serving in our public school system. Do the job that you're hired to do and not being asked to do a job of someone else's. Thank you. And Mr. Vallis, how do you repair that relationship between the mayor's office and CPD rank and file? First of all, by promoting leadership within who have the support and the respect of the command of the rank and file. Secondly, by putting police on a humane work schedule. Third, by not punishing the police when they are being responsive. And by four, and four, returning to beat integrity so police aren't being moved around all over the city. And finally, finally, providing the type of mental health intervention services that police officers need. Those five things would be transformational. And those five things would encourage hundreds of officers to return, not to mention slow the exodus of new officers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was effective. Um, Five-point plan that you love. Right, right. I mean, it's effective if you're auditioning for the job to be the Phil Esterhouse of the Chicago Police Department. Hey, let's be careful out there. Okay. If, you're, if you're there to call morning lineup. Big vision. Uh, a emotional appeal about uh, the violence and the death and the detritus. So if if that's beyond Paul's capacity, which it clearly seems to be, then I suggest he do what I suggested uh, last hour he do. But that seems to be beyond, beyond his capacity, too. He thinks he's going to give four-point plans and play defensive identitarian politics, and that's how he's going to get to the mayor's office, maybe. We'll see. I don't think so. I don't think that's uh, that, that the landscape... Uh, that is a advantageous strategy to pursue on this landscape in Chicago that we're describing. If you actually look at the landscape, get beyond these two candidates and look at the, 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 the city dynamics when it comes to electoral politics. Um, but also just take a step back in the city. Uh, this uh, interesting op-ed, see if this rings true to you. This is from an investment CEO. I came to the city in 1990 because I was young and ambitious. To my good fortune, a humming economy, effective policing techniques based on the broken windows theory made it relatively easy for me to start a family and business here. Today, however, it feels as if the conditions that made the city a destination for businesses and families in the 90s are no more. 
There may be no greater symbol of decay than the ubiquitous stench of marijuana. I smell it when I leave my apartment building at 6.45 a.m. and when I come, come home at night. As the health of, of public finance declines in society, so does private virtue. This is often because enterprising politicians find it easier to use vice as a source of public funding instead of making sober fiscal choices. Does that sound? Uh, does that ring true to you? Ugh. Yes. There is, well, first addressing the pot issue. You smell it everywhere. It doesn't matter what time of day either. People are getting their high on early, 6 o'clock in the morning, whatever they can. It's the stench of a city in decay. And by the way, uh, the city I was referring to and the author of this op-ed was referring to is New York. He's in in Manhattan. But that's my point. Your reaction is perfect because it could easily be applied to to Chicago and a handful of other big cities in this country, couldn't it? By the way, uh, yesterday, three cops shot in East L.A. Oh, no. Greg Jefferson Parker in Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning, guys. Yeah, you're right, Dan. And uh, you know what? But Dan Prop smoking those nasty cigars. We can't have that happening. Can <laughs> nope. No, nope, you don't have yeah, to worry about me. Yeah, we see you me. smoking them, Dan. I can uh, smell uh, it from here. <laughs> <laughs> i tell you, you know, we've got uh, uh, Jim Gardner, the 45th Ward, is also uh, on the ballot against the uh, right. one of the lunatic lefties. And one of the problems I see with with Paul Vallis is that, you know, he's got to go into these neighborhoods, you know, the neighborhoods that he needs, like Dan was saying, on the south and west sides in particular, and get specific as to what the heck he's going to do. Because Brandon Johnson is going to have all the purple-haired, you know, loony loons out, uh, you know, beating the streets. It's no longer the unions, although he's got the, you know, CPS or the teachers' union and uh, SEIU and a lot of these other guys all doing it. He's got all the all the lunatic lefties who, you know, were born and raised in grammar school to be uh, little Nazis for the program. And it, it's going to be a tough thing to beat, man. It really is. You guys have a good day. Thanks for the call, Greg. Verlon, South Side. Yeah, listen, that debate proved my point. Sean tried to take us on last week about uh, mineral politics. They played the race card every 15 minutes and ended on the race card. Mm-hmm. I, I've been telling people since November the 8th, when it comes to Chicago, Cook County, and Illinois, race matters. If you don't acknowledge race, you're going to lose. Paul Vallis tried to speak above it. I mean, he was very intelligent about it. But guess what? He got his, he got his own foot in his butt every time, and he's going to lose because Brandon Johnson has a tablespoon, not a teaspoon, to to fill people's belly. They're gonna eat it up, and they're gonna and and he's gonna be the next mayor. I'm so I can't mm-hmm. I can't wait oh. to talk about this Saturday. He's gonna be the next mayor. Dan. No, he's not. No, well, he's not. Well, I've already you're just confirming a prediction I've already made. Actually, Berlan, as you know, but thanks for the call. And I'm predicting you two it. are both gonna be wrong. Well, you, I understand. You're the the Bill Buckley school. I only predict the things I want to no, see no. happen. I Willie get it. Wilson endorsed him yesterday. I think that's a huge endorsement. I mean, if you look at the map and see where people voted, Willie Wilson supporters all go for Paul, which they have to. We need them. Then that would certainly help. And we're still waiting to see what's gonna happen with Chewy. He hasn't made up his mind yet who he's going to endorse. Yeah. Um, okay. And I know you know, I know I've heard you, you don't think endorsements mean anything, but they don't, it's something. For the most part. I mean, endorsements from organizations that have resources mean something. And endor- uh, endorsements because some politician has lent his name to your candidacy 
means very little. Marginal, you know, it varies to some extent depending on the popularity and 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 the affinity and the sort of not just popularity but the real affinity for a particular person. But I mean, it just doesn't move numbers that are not otherwise within the reach of the particular candidate being endorsed. It's just very, very, very few politicians have coattails. And so play you go play that endorsement game. It's just a dead bang loser. It's, this is the fundamental problem with Vallis is he thinks he can run a conventional campaign out of like 1993 rather than the kind of landscape that actually exists in Chicago in 2023. He thinks he can win without taking risks. Um, he thinks he can win with four-point plans and uh, being a pincushion, as Verlan was saying, as he was last night. He's wrong, but okay. Hope is a hope is a strategy. I know we had that. We elevated a guy who thought hope was a strategy to the president of the United States. So, by the way, that should also tell you something about the landscape. Larry and Bartlett. Hey, good morning, Dan and Amy. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I must be one of those rich white MAGA people. I live about forty miles west of the city. What I would like to have a reporter ask uh, both candidates: What are they going to do? to attract me to come back downtown to go to the theater, to, to go to restaurants. I loved going to the theater. I love the restaurants downtown. But parking has gotten so abysmal. Uh, I am terrified of going there uh, just for public safety. You can get shot anywhere, get carjacked, or both. Um, yeah, and yeah. it seems yeah. none of the reporters want to touch that. Thanks for the call. There's sort of a proxy question last night to that. It was, what are you going to do to revitalize Michigan Avenue? And uh, Brandon Johnson essentially talked about uh, logistics and biomedical companies. Right. Uh, apparently doesn't understand that Bull Mish is a retail uh, strip, not uh, not not a, a, a fintech or biotech incubator space. But um, but, you know, you just spin out of it and say whatever you're going to say. That happens in debates all the time. Uh, well, how are they going to get the suburbanites back? How are they going to get city folk to not leave the city? Well, if it's not safe, then. People won't come and people will leave. That's fundamental. I don't know what more you say after that other than how you're going to advance public safety. And both of them spoke to that to, you know, differing effects. Yet well, last Wallace, night. I thought was great. You know, he said, we'll, you know, lower the regulatory fees for businesses to operate on Michigan Avenue and on State Street. It doesn't matter. Work with them safe. to try and bring them back. I mean, yeah, it's fine. Well, I know there's he nothing talk, to come to now. He talked about the eighth floor and the permitting process and, and typical sort of minutia, and that's all well and good, and that's all true. And he's just like, I mean, Paul Vallis is the quintessential example of a guy lost in the trees, cannot see the forest, has such intricate knowledge of every twig in the forest, he can't see the larger environment george edison park hey george yeah hello yep. yeah andrew dog sorry dan and amy for the dog no problem um they're dog friendly i don't know if anybody's mentioned this but has uh Dallas reached out to the old daily machine i know yeah. he mentions chico every time bring chico out of the woodworks bring somebody bring he those did. people back he did. I he got endorsed by Gary Chico corruption. last week. 
Uh, that party? matters. Yeah. He was with Gary uh, Chico last week. They did a press conference together. Okay. Okay. Very, well, you know what? Corruption was uh, at its, its its peak back then, but at least the streets were relatively safe, and uh, you know you could walk your dog and and not uh, encounter somebody uh, trying to uh, steal or, or rob from you. You know, I don't know. We're uh, sleeping at your local park. Bad. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Thanks for the Got a text George. message, Dan and Amy, 100% right. I smell pot right now as I'm driving into the loop. Attics. I mean, you know, I I don't know what to tell people. Uh, just trying to, like, look at things how they actually exist. Um, and and the, the, the daily thing that George was talking about? Yeah. Yeah, but that's just, again, how how does that expand the circle? I mean, he's got Jerry Joyce endorsed him, so that's a, effectively going back to the daily days. I mean, what? How much more can he ring out of Mount Greenwood? How much more can he ring out of the Northwest Side, as compared to what he generated in the primary? That, that do you think that's, less people that's, are going to vote in this runoff than nah, the about the same? I assume it's, it's. I just. I mean, again, at this point, uh, three weeks out, uh, I don't see. Any like, you know, uh, movement occurring on either side. What I see is the normal institutional interests dividing along their normal lines, which should produce a normal turnout and a normal result. And the normal result these days, well, uh, the end of daily was Rom. Now it's identitarianism all the time. That would be the normal result. Joe in the in his car. Hey, Joe. Joe. Hello. Go ahead, Joe. Hi. Hi. Uh, I just wanted to say that uh, I've sold all my property in Chicago. I'm just waiting for my wife to retire. We're out of here. Property taxes are never going to stop going up. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Thanks for the call, Joe. Appreciate it. I saw a teacher yesterday. She was like, my property taxes doubled. I'm like, well, be careful who you vote for. Yeah. Gonna well, get, what else it's going to get worse. Ours went I know. up. Mine went up get, 2000 Well, and then it's worse than the collars because, of course, the commercial subsidizes residential in the city. So you think you're going to escape to the collar counties? It's going to be better. You don't own your home in Illinois. It is collateral for somebody else's guaranteed seven-figure pension. Uh, and, again, the, the problem is that the majority in this city and state don't believe that until they go to sell their house. They have to get hit in the head repeatedly mm-hmm. with rhetorical two-by-fours and the reality of the policy implications that the politicians they support advance before there's like, a, oh, well, I'm glad I'm out of here. Never any responsibility. Never any culpability. Oh, well, that's that's terrible. Oh, oh, oh geez, my, what's, the, what's going on with these property taxes? What, 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 well, why are, are all these people leaving? What, uh, what, what is going on in the schools? What, what, how, these, the lawlessness on these streets, where did this come from? Your General Assembly, your governor, your mayor, your Cook County Board President, your Cook County State's Attorney, your Cook County Chief Judge, your Cook County Sheriff. What? What? What, what is the... What? Hey, who? Right. Oh, I saw um, somebody have that aha moment. <laughs> Just watched. Perpetual surprise. And uh, aha moments happen, but it's usually not 
on a mass scale. It's one at a time, and Chicago's out of time. Mike Griffith, Indiana. Hey, Dan, I don't want to, I love your show, but I got to remind you, four months ago, you're the guy who said there was no chance Larry Lightfoot wasn't going to get reelected. No, that's not what I said. Chicago, I never said your, that. Your sentiment was with her all the way, and now I'm, you're nah, saying Vallis has no chance. Yeah, uh, Mike, you're wrong. I never said that. Uh, I jokingly said, uh, worst case scenario. So I was like, I was, I was satirically supporting Lori Lightfoot as like worst case scenario until you got a real handle on Brandon Johnson and realized he'd be worst case scenario. My actual prediction for weeks in advance of the election was Vallis and Brandon Johnson. So no, you're wrong about that. It's silliness. I'm not like super concerned about political prognostications and so forth, but it's the underlying analysis and how things break. So, no, I never said Paul, Lori Lightfoot was gone or was a shoe-in. In fact, I was on Stuart Varney's show the day before saying she's gone altogether. She's not making the runoff, which I had also been saying for weeks prior to, because obviously the implication of believing it was going to be Vallis versus Brandon Johnson is that Lori Lightfoot is gone. I mentioned at the beginning of the year that her fave on faves 2862 made it made her have a very low ceiling and i couldn't see a way that she gets to 20 percent. i talked uh for a couple of months since the beginning of the year about paul vallis who was going to be in the runoff saying that what he should be doing is trying to prop up Lori lightfoot and try to push her over because i thought he was she was the only candidate he had the possibility of defeating because she was so unpopular and because opinions were so hardened so no mike and griffith i'm sorry you're wrong and the other people with their ad hominems and their cheap shots and their lame magical thinking, you're wrong too. And go ahead and continue to be wrong and go ahead and to continue to curse opinions and arguments that you don't want to confront, realities that are too ugly for you to deal with, and you just believe your beautiful lies. Fine. That's how Chicago and Illinois have found themselves in the place they find themselves. Hear about the big stories of the day, then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. It's uh, March Madness is in full swing. Not just at the collegiate level, but also at the high school level. Oh, yeah. It's so exciting. We got a big uh, super sectional game tomorrow. Bennett Academy, my alma mater, versus the hated, I use that in quotation marks. Come on, just rivalry. So, uh, North Shore team. Uh, you may have heard of them. Nutrier, I believe is oh, the this school. Oh, this Nutrier school that you speak of. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, yeah, Nutrier. Yeah. No, I mean, Since I, I grew up in the area, I got it. Yeah. I don't, you know, Charlton Heston went there, so how much can I really uh, be disgusted by it? Well, actually, quite significantly, but still, Mary it's nice Carlin that Charlton went Heston there went too. there. Well, that doesn't help. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't. I was trying Stephen to, Moore. I was trying to cling to, Stephen Moore helps. I was trying to cling to something there. There's a famous actress who went to Nutria, too, I can't remember. Uh, there are several. So. Uh, Chris O'Donnell went there. He's obviously not an actress, but he was. He went there. Did uh, Oh, Anne Margaret went there. Anne Margaret, that's who I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. Well, enough uh, walking down the memory lane of Nutrier. What about Bennett? Uh, we got Frank Kaminsky. Oh, I love Frank the Tank. That's right. We have Dan Proft. Well. You okay. went to Bennett. Yeah, that's not quite enough. That's not. It, no um, where's the there. game being played, by the way? 
Uh, it should be at McGaw Hall in honor of the uh, anniversary, well, almost anniversary, of uh, the games that were played between New Trier and Marshall High School in 1965 and 1966, the Evanston Supersectional Games in 65 and 66. Uh, obviously, we all know the backdrop of the 60s with the civil rights movement in full swing, with uh, clashes between civil rights leaders and uh, proponents and police, with uh, uh, all sorts of things going on, the Vietnam War, the backdrop and protests over that. Uh, Joe Dondonville is a Chicago filmmaker and documentarian. He's the executive director of a film called Game Changers, and uh, you can find it at gamechangers.film slash film. This uh, memorializes those two contests, uh, an all-white team from Nutrier, an all-black team from Marshall, uh, playing uh, basketball at the highest levels, at the high school level. Many of these players went on to have uh, substantial college careers, too. And 65 and 66. And, you know, I, I sort of likened it to um, Texas Western versus Kentucky, the first all-black versus first all-white Adolph Rupp's Kentucky team and Don Haskins' Texas Western team. But it's not exactly that because, I mean, it wasn't like – I'm not going to describe purposefulness with respect to Nutrier having an all-white team where it was a little bit more clear at the collegiate level in Kentucky and an era of segregation. Uh, well, Jim Crow, yeah, segregation. Um, so th- that's not quite the same dynamic. But the all-black, all-white and the tumult, the political tumult of the time uh, is similar. And this is memorialized in part because there's cool 8 millimeter footage of the two games that were both played at McGall Hall on the campus of Northwestern. For more on these contests and the implications, and importantly, what comes through in the film to me is the relationship between the players on either on both teams, you know, on either side of these, this uh, rivalry that occurred over those two years. That's really the cool part is uh, having the guys from both teams talk about what those games were and what they meant and the relationship uh, so many years after they played them. Uh, Joe Dondonville joins us now. Joe, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Uh, good morning, Dan and Amy. Thanks for having me. Uh, uh, all right. So what's your what, what do you think about Nutrier Bennett tomorrow, first of all? What's uh, what happens there? What's the over-under? <laughs> You know, I think uh, Nutrier is a gritty team. They don't necessarily have Bennett's size, um, but I think uh, Bennett's probably the favorite. But you never know when you go downstate to Champagne. So um, that's true. I'm excited. Oh I yeah, that's right. Those, uh, it's, no, I'm sorry. Are the games that, in Champagne? Yeah, there they're, they're, were we're past the super sexuals. This is the the final four, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. Of course, right. So two thirty um, p.m. today. All right. Oh. Well, I, sorry. Are you going to be? Are you going to be filming it in the case you want to do a documentary about Bennett versus Nutria or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to see how it plays out. All right. Wait, All who right. are the other two teams? They're, 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 it says Nutria and Bennett. They're, the other teams are not important. Okay. Uh, you know, let's focus. Uh, so, Joe, talk to us about Nutria and Marshall, sixty-five and sixty-six, and um, yeah, you've had eight millimeter footage, but why you decided to pursue. Uh, telling this story? I met one of the guys on the Nutrier team at the end of 2015 and heard about the story. And he told me about the 8mm game film that was out there. And I said, well, the first thing we have to do is digitize it and make sure this 50-some-year-old film is still usable. And um, But then the idea was, it's not just a Nutrier story, it's a Marshall story. So uh, 
we found the, the Marshall guys and uh, got them together. And this is really what makes it unique. 50 years to the day after they uh, played the game in 66. And, um, and then showed them both game films. Uh, keep in mind, these guys had not seen each other uh, in 50 years. I mean, teammates had, but the Marshall and Nutrier uh, guys had been shuttled off the court and never had a ch- chance to shake hands. So um, it ended up being an amazing evening. And then over the next couple of years, we interviewed all the people that came, um, players, coaches, athletic directors, fans, cheerleaders, and wrapped those interviews in game footage. Well, what's, um, what comes across to me, and at least in the uh, the snippets of interviews that are that, that punctuate the film, is uh, think you think immediately, oh, the '60s, and it's an all-black team or all-black starting five, all-black team, I think, and all-black and all-white starting five in Nutrier, and you think, oh, the '60s, and this is going to be racial and orientation, and uh, there are going to be different perspectives, and it's going to be about racial politics and some sort of um, cosmic meaning behind the game. And what you get 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 is uh, a bunch of kids who love playing basketball who are part of good programs and good teams who love the good competition and learn to respect their competitors in that context. And there's not much politics at all. I mean, not that they were oblivious to it, but that wasn't their focus. And that's not how they recall those two contests. And I thought that was really sort of a great commentary on those two teams and all those kids at the time, as well as on uh, a great commentary on sport generally. Yeah, I mean, sport has that unique ability to bring people together. Uh, it obviously also elicits passion, um, given our discussion about Bennett and uh, right, to that, right, right. and that's a good thing. And uh, but yeah, uh, it, the, the backdrop of the times it was pretty turbulent, and the games were dramatic, and there was a lot going on. But uh, in the end it really was about basketball for these guys and, and sports is about relationships and team. And there were some great coaches involved, involved hall of fame coaches. Um, it was a really, it was a great story. Yeah. But there was a brawl in one of them because somebody shattered the backboard and while they were changing out backboards, um, there was a fight on the court. Can you tell us about yeah, that? So before the, yeah, before the game, uh, one of the backboard was shattered by a new center, Larry Rosenzweig, six eleven. Um, during pregame warm-ups, and it delayed the start of the game for about a half hour. But the 66 game ended before the final four, uh, or final horn, not be- because of a brawl on, uh, amongst the players. It was amongst the fans that spilled onto the court. And the game was a you know a double-digit lead at that point. So they called the game, shuttled both teams down to the locker room. But, yeah, it was pretty ugly. I mean, it was all over the front pages of the Chicago Trib and Sun-Times and Daily Illini. And, uh, you know, I think when I originally heard about the story, when I looked at some of the press coverage, because I was, you know, four years old at the time, I didn't know the story, um, that caught my attention. But really what captures your attention after watching the film is just the, the people that are involved in – team and it's really kind of a historical look back um at those times but also um gives you a current day perspective as well yeah i mean how how do they um you know what what was your sort of takeaway for how they view uh what has transpired uh in sports and society in general as they look back on you know where they were as teenagers in the mid-60s 
You know, that depends on each person you talk to because everybody's got their own perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the issues that were present in the 60s are kind of still around us today. Um, and Nutrier still looks a lot like Nutrier did back then, and Marshall still looks a lot like Marshall. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much smaller. Both schools had four or 5,000 kids at the time. I think Marshall's down to under 300. Um, yeah, and their basketball is program is not what it used to be at all. Well, the two things. Uh, the the guys' team made it to um, the Super Sectionals this year. Oh. Um, they're in 1A because they're small. Um, but they had a, a really, really good team. And the girls' team, as you guys may know, Dorothy Gators is one. Um, she's yeah. retired now. She's still yeah. the athletic director, but 10 state championships. She's the winningest yeah. basketball coach in the history of Illinois. Yeah, I mean so, it's yeah it. I mean the the Marshall thinking about Marshall at four thousand kids versus four hundred today. Yeah, I mean that's that's a sad commentary in in many respects. Um, and but and 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 basketball too. I mean, um, you know, part of this is thinking about people that maybe didn't play at that level or certainly the next level as a lot of these guys did, uh, and what that meant, what those games meant to them, and how that sort of informed their perspective on things and maybe even some of their life choices. Well, um, we all remember um, kind of those big moments from high school. And even though it was 50 years later, it was amazing uh, for these guys to recollect and um, and then just compare uh, the their viewpoints. So, um, you know, I think the, the games were important. Everybody went on to live some really amazing lives on both sides of the court. Uh, both the Marshall guys and the Nutrier. And at the end of the film, we have really a little um, synopsis of what each player has done since 1965 and 1966. And um, some amazing relationships were formed as a result of the movie. And um, and the guys then um, put together a foundation in, as a way to pay it forward. And since then, we've awarded over $100,000 in grants and scholarships Uh, primarily the kids on the west side uh, since 2019 when the Game Changer Grants program started. I'm glad you're not uh, offering scholarships to kids in Kenilworth. Uh, I'm I'm glad I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, Uh, it's going in the right direction. No, I mean just kidding. But you know, and our good Um, friend Chuck Hoppick is in it. Oh yeah, well Chuck's a new Chuck. Chad, you know, dearly departed Chuck Hoppick, new trier grad. Absolutely, he was there. He was at school. Yeah. He was a Nutrier 66 grad, knew all these guys um, from his class, was our narrator. It was one of his uh, last projects before he passed. And as you know, I mean, Chet was a pro, and uh, he loved this project. Um, his, his wish was that every kid walking out the halls of high school should see it. Um, but he, uh, he was the you know, quintessential broadcaster. Now, we did give – each year we give three um, grants to Marshall – one grant to Evanston, Nutria's rival. They were featured in the film. Mm-hmm. And then we, uh, one grant to um, a Nutria student. And um, one of the Nutria students that won, we've given it to a boys basketball player and a girls basketball player that are playing in college. But one of the students is a um, sports broadcasting um, student, and he's at Loyola University right now. He's got a hockey podcast. So, okay. um you know, it's it, it's been a great program, and clearly there's much more need of a need on the west side. Um, there's a lot of need in Evanston as well, but the the foundation has been 
a really nice thing for everybody that's been involved. And, and that's really what the screening we're doing on the Sunday afternoon at four at Nutrier. It's a fundraiser for the, the Game Changer grants and the scholarship fund. Very cool. The uh, film is Game Changers. You can uh, view it. Well, you can go to the screening Sunday, March 12th at 4 p.m. Doors open at 3.30. That's at Nutria West at uh, Cornog Auditorium. And as uh, Joe was saying, uh, all the proceeds benefit Game Changers Foundation, which provides those scholarships that he was just describing. Uh, wonderful. Uh, Joe Dondonville, Chicago Air filmmaker and documentarian, executive director at Game Changers Foundation as well. Game Changers film, excuse me, Game Changers dot film slash film, and then March twelfth this Sunday at uh, Nutrier West in the auditorium. If you want to go to the screening, wonderful, Joe Dondonville, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck with the film. All right, thanks, Dan and Amy. Have a great day. Good luck, Bennett. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very, thank you very much. Yes, thank you so much. And he joined us on our Turnkey dot Pro Answer Line. Hear about the big stories of the day. Then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. All right, before we uh, move on, we've got to correct the record we should know better than to be so loosey-goosey with people's alma maters high school very important in chicagoland you can't get high school facts wrong and amy you made an egregious error and i made a minor one well okay what did i do your egregious error not mentioning hersey high school no i went to school merrick garland not a neutral grad he went to niles west oh oh that's yeah, Should bad. I just resign now? No, we'll let you stay on. <laughs> but um, my uh, and my what's my, your mistake, Dan? Minor error as a oh. as compared to egregious error. Uh-huh. Chris O'Donnell, the actor, went to Loyola, <gasps> not Nutrier. Born in Winnetka, raised in Lake Forest, went to Loyola. I think we should work on each other's resignation letters. Yes. Yeah, maybe um, something so else. We had a good run. Something else where I gave short shrift. This was a slightly uh, more than minor error. Short shrift. I dismissed the other two final four teams for the state championship. Oh, yes. And? Bennett, uh, which, by the way, only one loss. The only loss Bennett has, they're 34-1, only lost to Simeon. Oh. Who's also in the finals playing Ignatius 3A. Ooh, okay. Uh, I put money on Simeon if you engage in games of chance like that. But anyway, um, it's Bennett versus Nutrier. The other two teams don't matter. Of course they all matter. Everyone matters, Amy. Uh-huh. And what Every are the high other school two team teams? matters, and we wish them all the best. Mary Queen of Victory, pray for them all. Uh, Downers Grove North versus Moline in the other semifinal. Oh. So I'm wonder if Shane Caston's going to be there. I'm kind of thinking that whoever wins the Bennett Nutrier game is the state champion mm-hmm. at that class level. And that's the other thing. Thinking about not to go too far down the rabbit hole thinking about high school basketball, but back in the day we were talking to Joe Dondonville about his film Game Changers and the new Trier versus Marshall games in 65 and 66. You know, there, there, was just, there was just a state champion. There weren't all these divisions based on school size. Um, so it's just such a different time now because there'll be obviously what I, what I don't even know. I can't even keep track of how many classes there are in basketball. It's different than there's, football. Oh. Six, eight? In no, football no. there's eight. Yeah, I think basketball, maybe there's six. 
Anyway, all I right. So we, but um, but we didn't we, make it to the finals. We've corrected the record on all things. And you're going to win because Catholic teams are always taller than public schools. I don't know uh, what it is. Although it's sometimes in basketball, it's that a little bit different. Matter. I mean, one of the great teams. I mean, here, here we go again. We're going to do we're going to do an hour on mm-hmm. high school basketball. One of the great teams of all time. Illinois, one of the greatest, but arguably, although I still might put. Michael Finley and Donnie Boyce's Proviso East team ahead of them. But one of the great teams in Illinois high school basketball history is the 1984-85 Hersey Huskies. No. Yes, it was. The best team we've ever had in basketball. Well, you ever had. I'm talking about for the entire state, not your... Well, we went downstate. Yeah, good for you. It's real nice. Pat on the head. So rude. Glenbard West, the Glenbard West team that won the state title last year. That was one of the great teams. And that's a public school, obviously. Yeah, they played... East, one of the great teams, Boyce and and Sherelle Ford and and, uh, obviously Michael Finley. That's a public school team, so... Yeah, and they played LeBron James's son's team, remember? At... uh... The, well, that was the one loss Glenbard West had last right. year was the when they the All Stars from California came in. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, yeah, we we've corrected enough of the record on AHSA but here. Now they're going to start a high school shot clock. I, I don't. Of that game. But well, we're getting in the weeds. Right. I, yeah, I also I also can't stand to hear any more Hersey stories. What? So we, we we have to move on. <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, yesterday, our friend Greg Bishop over at the Illinois Radio Network in Center Square. Uh, posed this question, Pritzker, one that we had raised during the election about his uh, substantial donations to two Supreme Court justice candidates who are now Supreme Court justices at the state level, of course, and how those two Supreme Court justices, Rochford and Mary Kay O'Brien, can rule on the constitutionality of the Safety Act, given their political support from Pritzker. Here's what he said. Explain the million dollars that you gave to each um, Supreme Court justices, and should they recuse themselves in two important cases coming up, Safety Act, no cash bail, and also the gun ban. I am sure this is something that the right wing is trying to stir up. I know you've written about it. Um, The fact of the matter is I supported candidates who are running all across the board. Um, If you're suggesting that uh, the fact that I gave money to, let's say, the Democratic Party or to the committees that supported uh, candidates means that everybody who received any money has to recuse themselves from anything to do with the state of Illinois. That's ridiculous. And I've certainly never asked anybody to vote a certain way or decide on a case a certain way. I would never do that. I never have. I never will. Um, And these are independent judges, and they didn't go around and campaign on things, you know, that, that they thought would win my support for them. I believe in them. I supported them like lots of other people did. Yeah, of course. Press conference no. over. <laughs> yeah, heavens, heavens, uh, no, no one would assert that there could be any potential or even appearance of a conflict of interest. Oh. No, no, of course not. You don't bite off the hand that feeds. Sean Kennedy is policy director of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund. He's a fellow at the Maryland Public Policy Institute as well. Uh, they've... Um, filed a amicus brief supporting Jim Glasgow and Jim Rowe and the challenge to the Safety Act, the constitutional challenge to the Safety Act that's before the Illinois Supreme Court. Oral arguments next week, expect a decision on the constitutionality by month's end, and then we'll know whether Illinois is going to descend further into lawlessness or not. It's good to know that before Easter. Sean Kennedy, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Amy. 
Um, so uh, did you heard the governor's response there? He gave a million bucks to each of the Supreme Court justices that won their elections uh, back in November. But of course, there's no reason they should recuse themselves because he just supports candidates because of who they are. And there's no reason to believe there's even an appearance of impropriety here. Uh, it's, it's concerning that the, the governor thinks that his personal and family wealth is uh, uh, acceptable for him to directly, obviously, interfere. I mean, it, obviously, everyone has the right to, to donate, but he is the governor. He's not just a rich guy who wants to influence the thing. He He's the one who signed these bills. He's the one who has political allies here. So, I mean, the perception, even even if wrong, that he's buying seats on the Illinois Supreme Court to justify his agenda is is a is a worry, it, it, at least a, in the sense of faith in government. If anything else, even if it's well, substantively there's no problem, well, uh, it, it does erode trust. May I file an amicus brief to your answer? Um, <laughs> sure. So here's what I would say too. In addition to that, to, to distinguish, because he does the whole, you know, oh, everybody I give money to, legislative candidates, uh, Supreme Court justice candidates, uh, they're all bought and paid for. Now they're independent, and they have to recuse themselves. From, no, 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 no. Uh, he should know this as a lawyer. There's a different ethical standard when you're an officer of the court. There are legal canons that attach to judicial candidates that are not attached to legislative candidates or state level uh, or other state level actors or local candidates. Um, and particularly for a Supreme, state Supreme Court justice, those are going to be um, uh, even uh, or should be even more tightly adhered to. There's a difference and there's a difference in the way judicial candidates are allowed to run in Illinois and a lot of other places, too, in terms of the kind of rhetoric they can use, the kind of positions they can take, the kind of branding and material they can use. So there's a very different standard when it comes to, say, a candidate for Supreme Court justice than there is for a candidate for legislative office. And he tried to blur those lines purposely, of course. Yeah, of course. I mean, he's, he's treating them like they're any other politician, uh, like he's buying an alderman seat. When, in fact, obviously, this is somebody whose job is uh, both as an officer of the court and uh, uh, the highest court in the state of Illinois to uphold the law first and foremost and not necessarily bend any political whim. Uh, and that that's definitely um, a concern. And that's that's where we are right now, I think, in Illinois, is that they're with the Safety Act and um, obviously uh, the general order from uh, Cook County Chief Justice um, Timothy Evans we're at a tipping point in terms of bail. We obviously have seen a number of horrific incidences in uh, Chicago uh, related to the bail reforms there. And uh, we're obviously seeing the chaos in New York that just goes on day after day where uh, bailees are getting uh, no bailees, I should say, people who didn't have to post anything or posted such a ludicrous amount of money uh, that they're getting out and going on to commit uh, horrific crimes and there are no consequences and there are no means by which to check them back. Um, and, and we're seeing the results of that. I mean, there was a little girl obviously famously uh, last year shot and killed by one of these individuals who was on a, a no bail order uh, under the Cook County thing. And now they want to bring that to every County in Illinois. They want to bring that chaos everywhere. Um, it's like everybody should feel the pain. Um, and at what point do uh, do people stand up and say enough is enough? And one of the things that's so interesting that I think people are are missing is when they look at some of the bail data and, and Timothy Evans and a number of these studies have come out is 
you sort of alluded to it, and it's obviously in the news about the state's attorney, Kim Fox, is because she's pressing so many fewer charges, there are people who are never even being coming up in front of judges in Cook County for bail. Their charges are being dropped or the, not being pursued, and as a result of that, they are being released before that. So we don't even know if these people were being charged under, a, I don't know, a sane state's attorney's office – we what what uh what would have occurred if they were released because they're going on to commit crimes but they're outside of the bail system altogether because they were arrested but never processed and so forth and obviously you're demoralizing chicago pd so they're not even making arrests where they should because there's no purpose um so we're in a sort of a a, a conundrum here where cook county is the largest jurisdiction in the state and it's already chaotic and bringing that to the rest of the state to so many people in Chicago is ho-hum. Why do I care what happens in um, McHenry County or what happens in Springfield or anywhere else? It's already happening in my hometown, so, you know, let them suck an egg. And uh, that's basically what the Illinois Supreme Court has to decide is, does the rest of Illinois get to meet Chicago's fate? Well, does what does your gut tell you? How is the Illinois Supreme Court going to side, with Pritzker or against the bail reform law? Uh, my gut is that there has been a, a moment, a tipping point, and I can't get inside uh, J.B. Pritzker's head, but nationally among Democrats, this D.C. crime bill, and obviously I live in the in the Washington, D.C. area, is evidence of this, that people are getting uh, a, a religion. I mean, even Lori Lightfoot, who obviously was run out of town uh, last week, was sort of getting religion and was taking it to Kim Fox and doing that. Was she doing enough? Obviously not. And now the front runner, uh, Paul Vallis, is uh, tough on crime and is, is seeking to sort of turn around some of the problems there. That's not going to fix the Kim Fox situation. But there is a movement among rank and file Democrats that, that enough is enough. And the line I always use is there's a, there's a famous quote about a, a conservative intellectual named Irving Kristol. And he says, a, li- a, a, a neoconservative is just a liberal who's been mugged by reality. A tough on crime Democrat is just a is just a, a liberal who's been mugged, and uh, we're starting <laughs> to see that. We had a Chicago alderman who was carjacked last year, two years ago, uh, and that then suddenly that uh, that alderman gets religion on crime, and and once this starts becoming real to these people in their own communities, then they they turn. So has that happened to these Illinois Supreme Court justices? I don't know, but I think there is a gut instinct that they've gone too far this time. And I'm hopeful or or cautiously optimistic that the Illinois Supreme Court on legal grounds, because there is a very strong jurisprudence uh, jurisprudence, uh, case that they reject this Um, on a public policy matter. The case is clear. No bail is going to be a disaster. Take Cook County and make it worse because it's actually more extreme than Tim Evans order. There still is cash bail to some extent in Cook County um, and make what is going on in New York even worse uh, because automatic and mandatory release will apply to even more people, even more violent and dangerous offenders. And uh, the chaos that's going to ensue, I think they recognize whether or not they stand up and, and, uh, and, and show themselves to be profiles and courage is yet to be seen, but I'm hopeful. Well, it's, you know, your commentary is a sad one, but not an inaccurate one. 
if you take note of saying this is uh, they're looking at this, the justices through a political prism and not a legal one, because on the legal merits, this is a slam dunk. It is unconstitutional. It's black letter. The single subject argument alone without getting into the nuances of it. But it's it is a is clearly an unconstitutional law the way it was written. But in terms of their decision making, they're processing the political environment. They're processing what Pritzker actually wants. Uh, because I think actually that the irony is the governor wants this thing overturned because he wants to be rid of it as something that nags at him, particularly with his presidential aspirations. But but you're right to lead with the political analysis, because that's how even our Supreme Court justices in Illinois process everything, despite the uh, oath they take to interpret based on the law and based on the state and federal constitution. It's a sad commentary, but as I said, an accurate one. Sean Kennedy's policy director at the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund, fellow at the Maryland Public Policy Institute as well. Sean, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM 560. The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy from The File. Everything is racist and or hateful othering. We should if you, get a, a slogan or a song for that segment. Yeah, we're going to have to work on that. Justin, Maybe get on that. Put Justin's creative mind and musical talents to work. Um... Look, uh, if you use these words or idioms, your mouth is going to be washed out with soap, if you're allowed to even use that idiom. I don't know. Uh, This is from Politico. Politico's uh, new list of banned words and phrases. Are you ready? Do you need a second to get pen and paper? Hold on. Hold on. I want to make sure everybody gets this. Okay, I'm ready. All right. Banned words or phrases, according to the vaunted Politico, beyond reproach. Politico says so. That's the law here. Okay. And don't you forget it. Mankind. Out. Oh, come on. <laughs> Obviously. Right. Man-made. Manhunt. Anything with man in it. Let's just go. Just do a category. So man-made. Manhunt. Manhunt. Huh? Mm-hmm. All right. All that's out. Crack the whip. There's this. Uh-oh. What are we going to do with the song? Crack that witch. Devo is done. Devo's gone. You Rest must peace, whip it. Devo. Uh, unacceptable because of the, orig- the uh, origins in slavery, according to Politico. <laughs> Anybody want to take on Politico? I didn't think so. Waiter or waitress. Wait, wait. No, 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 no. Nope. No, no, I was a waitress for four years. You were a server for four years. I don't just... like server. I think that's degrading. And waiter, I'm not in a safe space. Waiter and waitress is gendering. And you don't gender. Please. Biological gender, biological sex, biological woman, biological female, biological man, or biological male. That's whoa, all gone. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What about my biological mother? Uh, biological mother is... Mm, that might be biological parent. That's right. I think would be better. I don't want to get you in trouble with Politico. Illegal immigrant or illegal alien because, as we know from AOC, people cannot be illegal. Cakewalk, that's out. A what, you say? Cakewalk. A cakewalk. Mm-hmm. 
According wait, wait, to wait, wait, wait. yeah, how is that offensive? Cakewalk. Apparently, according to Politico, and again, who could argue with Politico? Originated during slavery and perpetuates racist motifs. Cakewalk. Right. That's what you think of when you think of cakewalk. I think they're like racism. somebody getting by easy. It's a cakewalk. Or it's, um, in reference to illegal migration. Yeah. And I, I don't think you're allowed to use the term illegal migration. Just migration. Onslaught, tide away, flood, inundation, surge, invasion, army march, sneak, and stealth. There are only happy migrations. I mean, that's not their word, but that would be my offering. There are happy migrations. There are fun migrations. There are joyful migrations. There's no onslaught of migrants. There's no flood. There's no inundation. There's no surge. There's no invasion. There's no army. There's no march. There's no sneak, and there's no stealth. Chain migration, out. Happy group migration, maybe better. Peanut gallery, that's gone. Why? Because the cheapest seats at a venue are often occupied by black people and people with low incomes. That's the political explanation. But it's no the peanut, peanut gallery. gallery. No! You always sat in the whoa, peanut gallery. Whoa, 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 whoa. Throttle down on the hate. Third world countries, no such thing. They're just countries. No, that's not true. Uh, third world is derogatory. It implies a hierarchy. Do you want to be part of a hierarchical, oppressive nomen, uh, you know, taxonomy? Obviously not. Political reporters also are not allowed to say that a transgender person identifies as this or that. The uh, situation at the border is never a crisis, just like the Biden administration tells us. Um, reporters should not portray migrants in any negative or, you know, as a negative, harmful influence in any way. Even MS-13, I wonder. Yeah, I guess. Uh, Pro-choice, that's out. Abortion rights supporter, that's in. Pro-life, obviously that's out, per Mrs. Greenspan. Right. Anti-abortion. Right, that's what they, you know, like, no, 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 don't use that word. Late-term abortion, verboten. Abortion later in pregnancy. Oh, come on, how about a happy abortion later in pregnancy? Let's, you know, really spruce it up. What do you think? So, and that's some of the important uh, updating of your uh, vocabulary so that you're not gauche and pimply when you're interacting in social settings. Happy to bring that to you. Thank you, Politico. Marty in Naperville, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Well, one of these said peanuts. I guess Charles Schultz has been canceled. So anyway, how about yeah. woman? That's got man in it. Even worse, women. What? Oh. No, 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 no. Nice try, Marty. Nice try to backdoor woman in. Uh, woman is spelled W-O-M-Y-N. Yeah. A woman or like woman? Well, like, well, like wine in there. I get it now. Okay, now I get it. Okay, you're right. Thanks for the call, Marty. Yeah, nice try. They're a little bit more cagey than you think. Am I allowed to say cagey? Um, this is perfect and just in time for uh, Juliana Pash's black crossword puzzles. Juliana Pash was tired of not seeing black culture and language represented in crossword puzzles, so she did something about it. <laughs> she, she, she was at the New York Times. She worked on their daily mini crossword puzzle. Will Short, she's not. 
by the way, a great documentary, actually, mm-hmm. if you like enjoy the New York Times crossword puzzle, which I do. Not not Julianna Pasha's one, but uh, Will Schwartz's is um, Wordplay. That's a really good. It doesn't sound like it would be a, uh, a fun watch, you know, a bunch of dorks uh, competing to see who can do the New York Times crossword puzzle the fastest, but it's actually quite good. All right. Uh, all right, I digress. Um, I was stuck on something, writes uh, Miss Pash, and I was like, this feels like some white Shiite, just to be honest. That's the thought I had in my head. Well, she's a real wordsmith there. No wonder she does the daily mini crossword. And then I was like, I wonder if there's a black version of this. The Afro-Latinx entrepreneur said. <laughs> uh, yeah. She's, launched, she's uh, launched Black Crossword to a very warm welcome, writes, Huff, uh, uh, writes uh, Huff Post, of course. She's dropped mini puzzles uh, daily featuring words that crossword fans may not commonly find elsewhere. When I was making it, I wasn't thinking about it what it would feel like when people would play this. I was like, I want this, so I'm going to make it, and I think it's cool. I think maybe people will like it, but it hasn't been until it launched, and I started to get some feedback that I was like, oh, this is a really cool format to validate the feeling. This is our language. These are things we find important. Again, I mean, what a dizzying intellect, and what a expansive vocabulary she has describing the black crossword. Everything is racist or hateful othering. Uh, One more piece on this. A visiting professor at SIUE, that's part of the uh, Illinois University system, Southern Illinois University in Edwardsville. Uh, She has written, argued, that black faculty at SIU and apparently elsewhere, I would assume, should be granted special paid time off as well as mental health therapy to deal with incidents of alleged police brutality. Angel Jones is her name. Her pronouns are she, her, and Ella, for those of you scoring at home. She writes, I'm a proud educator who loves what I do, but before that I'm a black woman. A black woman who's expected to return to quote-unquote, business as usual, on Monday after seeing a member of my community murdered on Friday. This was written uh, after the Tyree Nichols killing in Memphis. Although it is customary for employees to receive support and understanding while grieving the loss of a loved one, the same care is rarely shown to the black community when we lose someone in horrific and traumatic ways. Where's our black bereavement leave? Where are our counseling service? Where is our grace for missed meetings and deadlines while we mourn? Yes, we have jobs to do and students to support, but we also have trauma to process. She um, says that black people have to deal with racial battle fatigue and funding should be allocated to the mental health of black staff at SIU Edwardsville and elsewhere. Racial battle fatigue is the psychological and physiological consequences of experiencing racism has been well documented, can have deadly symptoms, including suicidal thoughts, can also cause elevated heart rate, tension, headaches and stomach ulcers. We experience these symptoms on a regular basis as a result of our firsthand racial trauma, writes Professor Jones. Free counseling services by culturally competent counselors 
nice alliteration, familiar with identifying and addressing racial battle fatigue should be available at all times. And black bereavement leave uh, should be provided in order to have space and time to grieve. Oh, boy. Black bereavement league. Because for the black community, unlike honkies or Latinos or Asians, um, every member of your community is a member of your family, and you grieve the loss of a member of your community like you would a family member, and thus bereavement leave, I guess is how it goes. What do you think of that? 312-446-446. That's my my cell phone number. Yeah, call me on my cell. And I'd like your home address, please. And I'd like your social security number, too, and date of birth. 312-642-5600, Turkey Depression. It's all out there. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You can call my cell, too, if you want. We'll continue this conversation (laughs) after 9 o'clock. No problem. Keep calling. (laughs) Bob in Buffalo Grove, Grand Chicago's Morning Answer. Uh, Good morning, uh, Dan and Amy. Thanks for getting to me. Uh, Last night I heard on the news that Disney's going to ban the playing of the song Zippity-Doo-Dah. What? Because of its uh, connection to what slavery? No, its connection to the uh, band movie um, "Song of the South." Oh, oh. Which, with with its connection to slavery. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the call, Bob. It's yeah, bank shot. Nation in Aurora. Hey, I got a word for Politico. What about when you go out to a restaurant, you ask for a menu? Mm. Oh. Yeah. Uh, thanks for the call, Nation. That probably needs to be replaced by um, food and beverage list, something something less noxious than menu. I see what you see what you're saying there. How about uh, what about that uh, black bereavement leave, and then you can uh, spend your day or two days or however many days you get off paid leave uh, per Angel Jones professor uh, doing those black crossword puzzles. Exactly. Right? <laughs> Black bereavement leave. You know, it's funny because in the debate last night, the question was asked of both mayoral candidates, Vallis and Johnson, uh, what are you going to do to close the racial wealth gap in Chicago? As if that's really within the power of the mayor to do that. And uh, But, you know, they all took, they both, I should say, took the bait and, of course, didn't challenge the ri- ridiculous premise of the question that was posed by, um, it wasn't Marianne Ahern's question. It was, you know, they had a few people that. Oh, right, from Telemundo and then somebody from, uh, where was Union League Club yes, or something. Yes, 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 yes. And, yeah, so anyway, um, and so, um, yeah, so th- this is this is all of the same kind here that, um what are you going to do to, you know, confer base, uh, confer benefits based on race? And when you don't uh, address the premise of the question, you just get into a bidding war. Who's going to provide the most benefits? We all concede that benefits should be conferred by race, and we should uh, start from the absurd uh, foundations of arguments like Professor Jones is making, and then we just compete to see who's willing to give more. Um, you know, I'm I'm surprised actually. Last night there was not uh, the R word raised. I'm surprised Brandon Johnson hasn't raised it yet. Maybe it's not as popular as uh, some would like us to believe it is. Which is even more reason why both candidates should be put on the dime on that question of reparations and these race-based benefits or gender identity-based benefits. You know, who is going to draw some lines where and when? 
this because this stuff is uh, really spiraling. And I know people think the parental revolt is going to uh, is going to generate some backlash and a real reckoning for the public school system. Uh, yeah, perhaps. And then you read uh, about the and, and we talked to uh, uh, the other day, um, Professor Kaufman from across the pond there about the how far and deep critical race theory, critical theory of all sorts, has insinuated itself into all K-12 through school systems, public and private. You look at a, a Wall Street Journal editorial that suggests that 6,000 schools, K-12 through schools in America, now hide the gender identity of students from parents. 6,000. That's how fast a, a virus... Uh, like this or like that spreads. So drawing lines when and where and uh, how you can. School board elections, not a terrible place to start. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. There's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.